pictures of the mind Reflecting pictures of the soul Hey everybody, welcome back to the Made for TV Mayhem show. My name is Amanda Reyes, and again, we're sort of on schedule, which is something that I'm kind of excited about, and I'm not sure how we're pulling it off, but we are. And um, we're talking about two really interesting, great, fun, entertaining, neat movies today, and we have a very special guest who I think is going to legitimize the word flapdoodle for us, I'm hoping, (laughs) as we go through this. But we are joined today by Justin Kurzweil of the Hysteria Continues and the Hysteria Lives website. And hey, Justin, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm very excited to be on the show. So, you know, thanks for having having me on. I've seen one of the movies before several times, not the other. So, uh, yeah, very excited to be talking about these two uh, made-for-TV mayhem Halloween picks. Yeah, you know, so we're talking about Midnight Offerings, which is kind of a cult classic in the TV movie world. And then the other film is called The Sins of Dorian Gray, which came out in 1983. It's kind of an oddball movie that I've been looking for for years, and then it just kind of appeared um, and I think this is a first time watch for all of us for that one. And I'm really looking forward to talking about that one because it kind of blew my mind. Um, and I found a little bit of stuff on it, nothing like groundbreaking or anything, but um, it's an interesting film. So thank you, Justin. Um, you do cover TV movies sometimes on your podcast if they are sort of slasher centric. And I know mm-hmm. I was on recently to talk about Dark Knight, the Scarecrow, and you guys did um, Don't Go to Sleep was another one you did and uh so you have some familiarity with the tv movie world which is great you're not just coming in here blind um and you did a little research which is going to make my job so much easier and i might throw a couple proposals your way i mean marriage proposals and <laughs> just think it over i'm used to that amanda i'm used yeah. to that. Long, long enough now yeah. so yeah just just consider them as the show goes on but okay. um I'm hoping this is my way to win you over when you see how welcoming and warm it is to be a, a part of the Made for TV Mayhem show. So thank you. Um, and I'm also joined by my two other regular hosts. So let's say hi to Dan. Hey, Dan, it's pretty early there, isn't it? It is very early here. And uh, I've, I've, got, I've, got, uh, I've got a big glass of water and George the dog next to me. And um, oh. I, think, I think we're going to have a good time. I think it happy Halloween, everyone. I hope oh, you're, yes. you're, uh, you're, the season is going okay for you. I know it's a little screwball, but... Um, I hope everyone's safe and well, and if you can get some candy, buy it yourself. Hey, there's there's a there's an idea. You don't have to go door to door. Buy it yourself. Yeah, I think this actually, hopefully, for people listening to this, um, this might be a nice alternative. Actually, podcasts are probably a great alternative to all the things we can't do on Halloween because because mm. we're just silly with podcasts that are really passionate about horror movies and and things like that. So. Maybe we're doing people a service. Maybe we're heroes. Have you thought about that? I all the time. I was thinking about it recently, <laughs> right before you called. <laughs> yeah, I dream about it. It's pretty amazing. Um, and we're also joined here by our friend Nate. Hey, Nate, what's up? Hey, uh, not much. Just uh, hanging out at home over the holidays. Yeah, and so I know that we're all pretty big Halloween fans. Can we all just real briefly, TV, movie, or otherwise, is there a movie that you have to watch on Halloween or leading up to Halloween every year, Justin? Oh, that's a good good question. Well, I, well, this year um, I've got uh, friends over for Halloween night, which of course it falls on a Saturday this year, doesn't it? Yeah. And I got my Scream Factory Friday Thirteenth box set. Oh, nice. I have my um, Friday Thirteenth Part Three three D uh, set up now with my three oh. D projector and glasses, so we can be watching that for the first time 
I have I did see it at the cinema. I'm not I'm not that old. I saw it on the original release. But I saw it um about 15 years ago in London at the um the National Film Theatre. They did a 3D retro uh, retrospective and I saw it there. But so I'm very excited to watch that. And it's, as usual, it'll be a double bill. So I think another, I'm not plugging Screen Factory, but another Screen Factory disc I just picked up was Superstition from 1980, mm. which I thought would make a great double bill. Two 1982 um, horror movies, one in 3D. So, uh, yeah, so we're going to be um, projecting onto the wall in the kitchen. So a little bit pokey, see how it works. But, uh, yeah, so it should be good times, hopefully. Oh, how fun. Um, Dan, I know... You- like the rest of us, you are silly with horror movies too, but sure. is there something you have to watch on Halloween or leading up to Halloween? Um, I'll usually watch Mad Monster Party. Uh, oh, at, great. At least oh, once. Oh, perfect. So that ties in to yeah. this. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, last year I saw it on the big screen. You remember we used oh. to go see things on big screens in theaters, not yeah. just like, yeah. And um, this this year it's been um, The Midnight Hour. I've watched about four oh. times. Which has, yeah, been, a great which has one. been pretty great, but those those are yeah. Man Bouncer Party is a definite, and um, this year Midnight Hour. It's been a it's been a good time. I'll probably watch it at least one more time before Halloween hits. I saw Mad Monster Party on the big screen myself many, many years ago when I lived in Los Angeles. There was a theater there called the Orpheum, which was downtown, oh, and it was uh-huh. this old theater from like the 20s. Mm-hmm. And um and maybe not a theater theater, but then it became a movie theater over the years. And it uh they used to have these things i can't remember what they're called now but they would have movie marathons every halloween and they would have really weird like they showed motel hell with last house on the left oh like that's a weird double and <laughs> they showed motel hell first and everybody was really into it it's really fun and then they showed last house on the left and nobody really knew how to respond to it because they were expecting, I think, another horror comedy. Yeah. And there was somebody tried to heckle the movie. Oh, yeah. During the rape scene, mm-hmm. and and somebody got really irate with that person, and I thought there was going to be a fight, and that was. And one night they showed Barbarella with like Rosemary's Baby. I mean, they would have these really weird, but they showed Mad Monster Party, mm-hmm. and I think it was my first time actually watching it, and it was a pretty pink print. That but, maybe um, the same print I saw, yeah. It was, it was yeah. really going pink, yeah. It was so much fun, though. Yeah, it's a great one. Um, Nate? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Dan. Oh, I was just going to say, um, as as far as the uh, strange double features where uh, people maybe shouldn't be heckling the second one, a few years ago at the New Beverly, I saw a double feature of Don't Go Near the Park, the Lawrence Folds film. And um and then House at the Edge of the Park. Now House at the Edge Ooh. of the Park House 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 okay. at the Edge of the Park is a bit goofy, but it does get a bit rough at times. And people were yeah, kind of kind of heckling Don't Go Near the Park a bit, not too much because the director was there. Um, but the moment House at the Edge of the Park started, it was like two or three guys in a row. Um, in, in a, not like like they said it in a row. They were sitting in a row next to each other. Uh, who who tried to heckle the movie as things got kind of nasty, and they got. They got looks, and I think someone yelled, please shut up, and they just calmed down. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I love House in the Edge of the Park, and, um, but it, that part where Cindy shows up at the end, the blonde, Yes. it's oh, yeah. really, really tough to watch. But the rest of it I can kind of separate myself from, even though it's like wall-to-wall sexual assault, and it yeah. should be really offensive. There's something about it that's not. And um, But that, yeah, when that scene comes on, I'm just, it's so horrifying to watch. Yeah. It's such a weird kind of thing in there i'd love to see that on the big screen i'm really jealous of you and and also by the way my my rats are wrestling in the background so you might hear some (laughs) noises sorry about that so okay so nate what do you have to watch on halloween or leading up to halloween 
Well, I'm very cliche. I have to watch Halloween and Halloween 2. I have yep. to watch those back-to-back on Halloween just because they're it's a continuation. And Jamie Lee Curtis' yeah. hair looks exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> but riggier, right? <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but um, my other staple is Rocky Horror Picture Show. I have oh, to watch it sure, every yeah. October. Always. Oh, so much I fun. You guys music. really... Do and West really Time Warp and everything? Uh, Wes is not a big fan of Rocky Horror. Oh, I mean, I'm I'm on. sad about that. Um, but I think the problem is I watched it when I was young, so sure. I have uh, nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with it, but Wes didn't watch it till he was older, and mm-hmm. he just didn't get it. So you might be semi jealous to hear that I'm seeing Halloween at the drive-in uh, the day before Halloween. Oh, yeah, and I'm really excited about that. I've seen the theater a couple of times now, and um, and it always looks beautiful. The audience reaction is always different. Like, sometimes people are really, like, into it, and sometimes people want to make fun of it. And I can never guess who the, what the audience is going to be like, depending on when I go. But at the drive-in, we're not going to know who's saying what, so that's really nice. And then, like you, Nate, every Halloween, I need to watch Halloween, too. I just need to watch it. It's, like, my favorite... You know what? I love all the twos. Like, I love Friday 13th Part 2, and I love Halloween 2. Maybe Friday 13th Part 2 is my favorite of the sequels of those types of movies. But Halloween 2 is so good. And I'm not saying that's better than Halloween technically, but it ups everything times 10, like Scream 2 comments on. And and it's so much fun. And it also has Lance Guest, which I'm never turning down, ever. And so... Like, so, like, that movie for me is just, it's become a tradition where I just watch it every Halloween. But for years, I used to watch it on TV because it used to come on one of the cable channels. And so I've really seen the TV edit way more than the theatrical edit. Mm -hmm. And whenever I watch the theatrical cut of it, I get really, like, thrown off because it's so different. And so Shout Factory just recently released, or I guess in the last few years, released the uh, TV edit. And that's the one I watch, I think, every year, even though it's it doesn't make any sense. It's the one I prefer. <laughs> um, plus, I think, not to be too spoiler, but Lance Guest lives in, this, in the TV edit. I don't think he makes it in the theatrical. So it's, it's more important for me to see him at the end of the film. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Than it is for the film to make sense. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I watch every year. Well, at least it was, I was for a moment. I was worried. I was getting flashbacks that you might be saying you wanted to watch Rob Zombie's Halloween too. <laughs> I know you better no. than that. Do you know I've never seen that? You know, I I saw the first one, and I was really disappointed in it. I did not like it at all, and I just couldn't bring myself to watch the second one ever. And I know you guys recently covered it on your drunk cast, and I I feel like it's not a movie I need to watch to listen to your no. show. You know. Yeah, no, I just can't. I mean, I have friends who love that movie, and I and I will actually defend, um, heavily defend Lords of Salem as like a legitimately great film. But nothing else that Rob Zombie's done that I've seen has really clicked with me. So I just don't feel compelled to watch anything that he's done that I haven't seen already. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you all were across the board on that, but I guess we'll find out. So, so Justin, let's just talk real briefly about your podcast in case we have listeners here who aren't that familiar with it. Um, even though Nate, uh, you know, talks about it from time to time and we try to plug it at the end of the show. Uh, so you, um, I think recently celebrated kind of an anniversary with your website, right? Is it you've been around for like 20 years or 25 years? 20, yeah, not quite 25 years yet, but uh, 20 years. Um, I yeah. think well, it's coming up 22 years now, actually, because Ooh. it was August to, uh, 1998, I think I launched it. Uh, so 
um, which kind of it's ridiculous, isn't it? They say as you get older, time speeds up, and it definitely feels like that. But um, but the, the podcast was an extension of that because obviously I've known Nathan and Eric and Joseph for so many years, way way back in the the midst of time of the uh, the alt horror, um, the news group communities that proliferated in uh, on online back in the late 90s. Uh, and so um, I, I can't remember exactly where the idea of a podcast came out, but we did it. And it's we've I know and Nathan wasn't with us for the first couple of episodes. And we, we spoke about that. And obviously, we're obviously very happy for him to be with who's been with us in the last 200. So um, but we listened back to the very first episode. We did not happy birthday to me. And it sounds like we're recording through uh, two tin cans uh, connected by <laughs> So I think we've improved things or things have improved a bit. But, uh, yeah, we still we have fun with it. And, um, you know, I don't I, I know it's like for you guys, but we're I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I mean, that's my thing. I listen to all sorts of different types of podcasts. Um, but I I think we we kind of agreed that if it ever stopped becoming being fun, we'd stop mm. doing it. But still fun to do it and we kind of do it in a way that we don't we try not to second guess what people want in so much it's kind of what we want to do mm-hmm. and if people want to listen then that's great if they don't then that's fine as well because also we know our demographic you know it's uh, three gay men and a straight man is not necessarily <laughs> the horror demographic that uh, gets most listeners so it's it's but it's it, it works for us and we have fun doing it um I... and also as little, sorry, I was going to say very quickly, the last podcast I did with Nathan and got to talk about the Queen for half an hour. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I actually finally went back and listened to it, even though I wasn't going to, just to see what all I said. Because I won't lie, I don't remember this podcast. <laughs> I don't remember doing it. So that's how much alcohol I had uh, in preparation for the drunk cast. I way overdid it. But there's a huge section where I want Justin to get Queen Elizabeth on the phone so I can get knighted. <laughs> well, see, Nathan, um, I know, Nathan, you said you wanted the recipe, but Nathan's Nathanian was, if I remember correctly, was rum. Was it rum, red wine, and juice? Yes. Oh, Which, when I said Stuart, what that was, he said, oh, my God, that sounds like an instant hangover. <laughs> uh, Stuart had, had the right idea. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah it sounds it sounds intense but i wanted to go back and talk about your demographic really briefly so you say three gay men and a straight guy and you think it's a niche and, and to some degree it probably is but um your podcast is really big and it was one of the first podcasts that i can think of that uh did horror in general but especially slashers and i don't know if you're breaking a glass ceiling there but i think when you guys started your podcast, however many years ago now, it's been a long time, um, that people were just discovering that people that weren't just straight white guys were watching horror and slashers in particular, like women. Like, I'm a huge slasher fanatic, and I didn't even really know till the Internet that there were other women like me. Yeah, I just thought it was me for so long. And so there was, like, Camp Blood was a really great website that covered... Um, like sort of gay perspectives of all kinds of horror movies, but a lot of slashers as well. And I think your audience is a great mix of men, women, straight, gay, and otherwise. Have you been kind of surprised by the response? Because it's been mostly positive as far as I know. Um, And it has led you to all kinds of things like commentaries. And I know you've been associate producer on documentaries and things like that. And so being a gay man, and I think I asked this question with John Larkin too, in horror, uh, when you first got into it, did you think it was only you? And have you? And again, like I said, are you surprised by the response from all these different demographics? Well, it's kind of uh, it's a good question because 
when way back at this time when I started the website and it, well before Scream came out in '96, it's not so much being a gay horror movie fan or slash movie fan. It felt like I was the only slash movie fan on the planet yeah, at that yeah. point without the internet. <laughs> It didn't actually feel like anyone was watching these movies anymore. They felt like they felt like the world sort of was so passe. Because there's this kind of weird thing, isn't there? With I was thinking with culture, it's it's this kind of 20 year rule where whatever was popular 20 years ago has some kind of renaissance culturally mm. quite often. Uh, and so when you're, it's usually you look back at the decade or the decade before the, the decade you're in, where things look really naff. And I remember back in the um, in the 80s, everyone thought the 70s were the naffest decade, and then the 90s, it was the 80s, and the 80s was really naff, and then the 80s had a revival. And so, you've, so at the time when I kind of got in, I was looking back at these movies, and I kind of drifted away from them because I was a fan of slasher horror movies from a kid. I mean, I even remember watching and talking about the TV movies and Don't Go to Sleep. Um, these are the kind of movies I was allowed to watch because they were TV movies. They were, my parents didn't think they would be that scary. Um, obviously, Don't Go to Sleep is an exception because that's quite a scary movie. Yes. You kind of used to hide behind the sofa, literally, so I could watch creep into the room and crawl along the floor <laughs> on the sofa so I could watch from beside, see see movies. And so it was, uh, so I've always had that. Um, and then for a while, it seemed like in the 90s, early 90s, that horror was so passe, no one was interested in it at all. And that's when I kind of thought, well, actually, I think I'd be, be interested to look back at these, these films. So it wasn't until later then I saw um, from the gay perspective that there was um, kind of a renaissance. And I have seen this. There's so many podcasts out there now, some great ones, um, you know, and uh, uh, looking at it from a gay perspective and also a lot of um, female-fronted uh, podcasts, um, genre podcasts mm-hmm. as well. So it's really good to see that now. Having said that, it's um, we talked with, um, uh, you know, we've talked off air on our podcast because we get an interesting response to our podcast um and actually we have a very wide i think it's fair to say nathan isn't it, a very wide demographic of listeners and every any time we mention politics on the podcast mm. we get help for it oh so yes <laughs> it's it's um it's an odd we have an odd mixture i mean even as somebody who's posting there was a QAnon or whatever it was that, that weird yeah thing that, I mean, Somebody who's a fan of our podcast is also a major playing player in that, or seems to be in their own head on on their Facebook page. <laughs> we got this kind of. So I was just thinking, wow, this is odd because when you're speaking into the air or you're speaking to like-minded people, you feel like not exactly an echo cham- chamber, but it's kind of like a pair of comfy slippers in some ways, isn't it? That you can spark off each other, but you feel generally you're on the same page when it comes to things. Um, so yeah, it's been an education, but I think we live in a bit of a messed up crazy world at the moment where um, everyone all the reactions to everything are are possibly different to they would have been 10 years ago uh, and uh, sometimes reactions are far more violent um, not physically but through mm. just through communications than they would have been 10 years ago there we are living in a bit of a strange time but um, so yeah it's um, it's interesting 10 years we've been doing it so we've kind of committed in mm. in fact comes ten or years if we can make it. Um but we'll be interested to see uh if we're not all eating bones in caves in ten years time. Then um, <laughs> yeah. I'll still be talking about that. 
Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we were. Um, something you said, it, it was interesting. So, like, when I first started my blog, I started a Facebook page to be the companion to promote it. And um, I don't have a huge amount of followers, but I have, like, 1,500, which is pretty good for TV movie stuff. And what's interesting about it is um, back when I just had just a few hundred people following, when people would follow my page, I'd go onto their Facebook and kind of check out their Facebook page. I don't really do that now because there's too many. But... I found that I had like very conservative people and very liberal people and very, you know, people in the middle, of course, all kind of joining my page. And like, I was really lucky that I haven't had a lot of altercations on my page. Um, but it fostered a really neat community where like TV movies were like one place that people could come together and kind of agree that they really like them, regardless of other things in their life. And so I try really hard not to be political, but it's kind of hard now in these days not to be. But um, and I, I think we've only commented a little bit on it. But people do get really, it's really interesting that you can love a show so much, but then they say something that goes against like your political ideologies and all of a sudden you're horrifying and they have to comment on it. And um, people, I think the Internet makes it easier because it's just a um, one sided because like if I say something to you, Justin, online that's really mean I don't really have to see your face when I say it so it's so much easier for me to say that to you because I don't get that reaction if I get that if I get a reaction from you it's going to come like minutes after I've said it so it's like it's not like how a human interaction would be you know and so I think it gives people freedom to feel like they can say and do things especially too when they're anonymous you know they're not using their real name on things so it, it can become really like a dangerous place but I think in general based off just listening to your show and listening to the feedback and all the different people that uh, respond to you, you guys have fostered a really great community that crosses so many boundaries. And that was probably unknown 10 years ago when you did it, that it would do that. So, and it has led the way for things like what I'm doing, you know? And so um, you guys have been really great. And if nobody's, ha if people are listening now that haven't checked out your podcast, um, the Hysteria Continues, which is Sasha-based, then I highly recommend it. Be and start from the beginning, because Justin says, oh, we sound like we were, you know, on two cans on a string. But the progression of your show has been really great. I think you guys started off really well. I don't think you should be embarrassed about the first episode. But you've definitely grown, and the rapport you have is like no other podcast I've really ever heard before. It's When I listen to you guys, it's just like sitting around listening to friends and it's especially now in 2020 it's been such a comfort for me to put on your show um especially the patreon episodes where you guys just kind of talk about different things and so anyway that's just my little gush but like people should really tune in if you haven't yet it's such a great podcast may, may um, i may i gush for a moment yes of course i, I was just going to say that um i think it was about 20 years ago um i was on uh, I had just watched uh, Don't Go in the Woods Alone for about the 15th time. It's one of my favorite uh, slasher films. And I just happened to go online and was Google around then. I did a search for Don't Go in the Woods to see if anyone had reviewed it. And J Justin, you had reviewed it over on Hysteria Lives. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so I've been a big fan of Hysteria Lives since then. And I think I, the first Hysteria Continues I listened to, and you guys, I think you started in like 2011, is that right? Is like, that's, yes, that's I right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think I joined in several episodes in, I think, I believe the second episode I listened to was House of Death. And like you, you mentioned that there, there was a time when you didn't think that anyone was watching these films. 
and mm. I had that was when I was writing uh, for Bleeding Skull, and we had done we had done a commentary for the DVD of Sledgehammer, but then just for fun we did a couple commentaries just on our site, and we did one for um, Iced and House of Death. And I remember listening to you guys talk about House of Death on there, and I think you—I believe you—you you guys mentioned our commentary on there real quickly. I think to—I um, um, think we had said that we thought the killer in Final Exam and the—I forget the character's name in House of Death, the slightly touched character—is it Casey or what's his name? Yeah, I, I it's Casey. Casey. Yeah, we thought he was the same actor. And I remember listening to the House of Death, your episode, enjoying it, and then you, I forget who it was who mentioned it, but someone, it could have been Joseph, said something like, well, on this, uh, on this commentary on their site, they say that um, uh, this, these actors are the same actor. That's incorrect. And I thought, that's awesome. You know, like six <laughs> months ago, six months ago, I, I, I thought, like, who cared about House of Death? I thought, you know, I owned it on VHS, but I, I didn't think anyone else in the world watched it, apart from Joe, obviously, on, on, um, on Bleeding Skull. And I, but, but just to hear a podcast where someone was coming on and saying, yes, we heard some other people discussing House of Death, and there's a, we have a correction. And I thought, who would have thought that? You know, that's something you expect for 2001 or Seven Samurai or something. You don't expect that for House of Death. So I was hooked from that point on. Excellent. Well, I'm glad we've... Uh, well, thank you both. Um, it's very it's, uh, lovely to hear. It's kind of... Say so for us, we, as you guys do, I love talking about um, uh, the, the movies that you love, and that comes through the shows I've listened to. And it's mm. so it's we enjoy doing it, and I think that's why people enjoy listening, or the people who do enjoy us um, uh, listen to us. There's, there's one rogue person on our our YouTube who always gives us a thumb down. So. <laughs> <laughs> We can always count on like the one like really angry person to like just destroy the party. But it's you know I you know you are so right though about like um because I know you said it too when you were on supporting characters which is um you know Bill Ackerman's podcast. I remember you talked about when it stops being fun you want to stop doing it and I've always taken that to heart for myself now that I've been able to do some more things too with like my love of TV movies and horror and, um, and you guys always keep it consistently fun and upbeat and interesting too, you know, like the stuff. And actually there's going to be some information here about the fan, which is a movie you guys just covered the 1981 fan. And um, that's going to tie into the sins of Dorian Gray, but like um, the amount of information you dug up on that was so incredible and so much fun to listen to. And so you're even like 2000 episodes in, you guys are still bringing it to the table, like in ways that no other show can, you know? And so um, I'm just living in your shadow and trying really hard to copy you. That's basically all that is. It's hardly living in our shadow, Amanda. I think uh, you are, um, you're a titan of your own field. That's probably not the right, quite the phrase I was going for, but you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, I like it. No, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny there's this movie called and we'll get into the our movies here but there's a movie called Night Cries which is a really great horror movie from the late 70s TV movie with Susan St. James and at the end of the movie they're at a um, nobody's going to think this is that interesting, but they're at like a river or at the ocean or something. And there's a boat and it's, and it's called the channel queen for the, you know, the channel in the water. And, and I took a still of that and I sometimes call myself the channel queen because it's TV, you know, channel. And nobody really thinks it's that interesting, but I, that's what I call myself. So <laughs> when I'm alone in the mirror, you know, doing my hair. I'm like, <laughs> well, we'll know, we'll know. Next time you're on the show, Amanda, and that's how I'll, I'll introduce you. 
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so anyway, so let's get to our two movies. Um, we're going to just do these chronologically. So let's start with Midnight Offerings, which is a wonderful movie that I think a lot of people listening have probably already seen. And we're just going to go through it. We're going to spoil it. It has a pretty interesting, shocking ending. Um, so listen at your own discretion. But um, Dan, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about the film? Oh, of course. Um, now, my, um, my uh, brief uh, breakdown here won't include the ending. We'll spoil that later. I'll just take it up to yeah. a dramatic point. But this one takes place at a high school. And, uh, well, actually, it begins with a uh, biology teacher uh, dying in some sort of accident. And intercut with him about to die and dying is a young woman um, shrouded in darkness speaking um, witchy terms Hecate stuff like that you know the stuff witches say and uh, the next day at the school we meet uh, what we meet Viv her boyfriend uh, Vivian who's Melissa Sue Anderson and we meet her boyfriend uh, David who is a um, he's he's the head uh, quarterback at the school and uh, we learn about that teacher having died and everyone's very sad about it we also meet um, Robin uh, Prentice who is a new girl in the school and is a little discombobulated trying to figure out where everything is she kind of has a bit of a um, I guess you call it a meet cute with David uh, where they kind of um, he kind of helps her out a bit and we see that Vivian is very um, Vivian doesn't look like a lot of laughs I guess is a good way to describe her she's um she's very stern and she's very um, it, it's it's intimated that um, she is the oh, although we kind of we kind of know it that she was the one doing all the witchy chanty stuff and David knows that she does this stuff and we learn that Vivian has basically been using this sort of witchy power she has well she has the power she you know she has this witch power uh, to get everything she wants on the campus get the get her uh, the good looking boyfriend we learn that she's like um, uh, incapacitated like the previous head quarterback so so he can be there and um, she had the uh, bi she killed the biology teacher because she, uh, he was going to flunk David which would have uh, kicked him out of, off the football team and we learned that Vivian is very cold and rather heartless and just wants everything the way she wants it. And then we meet Robin, who's a little bit, not quite flibberty-jibbity, but, but, but a bit more <laughs> uh, uh, like that. And Vivian and David have sort of one of those arguments where Vivian basically says to David, like, you're going to do this, and you're going to toe the line, and you're going to do this. And David basically says, you know what, get a new David, and he takes off. And he meets up with Robin, and they sort of hit it off right away, which Vivian isn't thrilled with and Vivian sees a rival there and what does Vivian do when she sees a rival she tries to well or a rival or or an obstacle she begins to try to eliminate it now as she is working on trying to get rid of Robin we meet Robin Robin and her dad Ma, her mom died uh, at childbirth and we meet the dad and we learn very quickly that Robin has some sort of they look to be like telekinetic, almost like Friday the 13th Part 7 powers at first. But it turns out that, well, I'll, I'll tell you what it turns out to be in a minute. But we learn that Robin and her dad have had to move several times because Robin has a bit of the, the telekinesis and she can she can read your mind, that that kind of thing. And then we meet, uh, we meet uh, Vivian's family, uh, Diane and Sherm. 
and yes, Sherm is, <laughs> Sherm is played by Gordon Jump, if you were wondering. And um, uh, Diane is very worried about Vivian. Um, it, it looks like at first it's just sort of like a mom kind of worry, and Sherm's like, ah, forget about it. You know, she's the only one of our kids who's going to amount to anything. Leave her alone. But, but uh, you, you gradually realize that um, Diane knows her, her, uh, her daughter is a witch, and you learn it's it's, it's sort of a lot of uh, sort of witchy mythology comes in here because you learn that um, both Vivian and Robin were the seventh daughters of seventh daughters, and they are witches. And the way of the way it works is that the mom teaches the daughter the the trade as it were. And I guess uh, Diane had taught Vivian some of it, but then Diane had kind of she's too happy with Sherm. So she kind of just pulled away, but Vivian has kept up her her training and her her learning all the the black arts and such, and um, that's why she's so she's very powerful. Whereas Rama's mom, obviously having died at uh, childbirth, her and her dad have no idea what's happening. So as Vivian is putting all co- kinds of whammies and things on Robin to try to, well, to try to f- first kind of just like knock her out and get her out of there, and then to eventually to try to sort of kill her. Um, David and, uh, takes Robin, and David and Robin are beginning to have a little something going on, if you know what I mean. Takes David and Robin to see, yes, Marion Ross. Now, she's not Marion Ross in this, although that would have been great. Um, but her character's named Emily Moore, and Emily is a... Um, actually, I, I was a little unsure as to what exactly Emily Moore was. But she knows that Vivian... Uh, I'm sorry, that Vivian and Robin are witches. I know it sounds like something out of one of those rags you buy at the supermarket at the checkout stands. But that seventh daughter nonsense is not necessarily nonsense. They're ready, Mom. The timer just went off. Okay, take them out. Use a pot holder. Bake sale at school. Everybody I know is on a diet, and they still have these bake sales. <laughs> well, anyway, got the eighth grade to Magic Mountain last year. I don't know if you have powers. Let's say the signs are there. Classic witch name. Prentice. Prentice, yes. There was a Joan Prentice, I think, in medieval times. No, I was referring to the name Robin, a name classically given to the head of a coven. A coven's 13 people. As in Robin Hood and his 12 merry men? Robin Hood. Haven't you ever wondered about the number 13? Why it's feared and considered to be unlucky? It's a number revered by witches. See, Robin, there are 13 lunar months in a year, 13 full moon espats, uh, lesser meetings, when witches are summoned by their deities to do service. And she basically says, you know, Vivian's a really strong witch. She's going to come after you. You have to go out and you have to train, maybe with David. Maybe you can kiss, too. Go out and train. Go out and have a good time. Are you sure it's all right here? Yeah, it's okay. Look, let's start by practicing your quick draw, okay? My quick draw? Yeah. I hope I have one. No, no, Mrs. Moore said you had the power. Now, come on, let's do something. Um, what? The canoe. The canoe? Yeah, go ahead, do it. Sure, the canoe. Move. For my next You're not concentrating. I am. Well, then your attitude's wrong. Look, if you don't expect it to move, it won't. Now, remember what Mrs. Moore said? You can do it. You stop that planner right in its tracks. And the clock. All right, I'll try it again. No, don't just try. Do it. Now, go ahead.
You see? You did it! I did it! Yeah! <laughs> well, wait a sec. We need it back, though. Bring it back. No problem. And so it kind of builds as uh, Vivian has got all these little plants. She's got a little black cat familiar. Uh, I think she's got a crow or raven, too, mm-hmm. that she uses. And she is coming after Robin. And Robin has to basically train. It's not like a karate kid kind of thing where, like, she does long training sequences. But she has to sort of learn to use her power before Vivian comes after her to kill her. I, I guess I'll leave it there. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so had you seen this before, Dan? No, no, I had not. I'd heard of it, but I had not seen it. Okay, so so I think the rest of us have seen it. Why don't you go ahead and just tell us really briefly what you thought of it, since you oh, sure. are the virgin in the group. Sure, sure. Um, I, uh, I, I watched it twice. I liked it more the second time I watched it. The first time, for about the first half of it, up until Robin uh, starts doing her sort of training, as it were, um, I, I was kind of watching it thinking, okay, this. I feel like I've seen this before. Where where is this going? But then somewhere in there, it does a great, and it's 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 written by probably one of my favorite TV writers of the time, and I'm sure we'll talk about her in a bit, Juanita Bartlett. Um, and so I knew it was going to be well written. I just didn't quite know exactly where it was going. Um, and so when it kind of when Robin begins her training, and then it kind of builds towards the ending, I thought it just sort of got better and better as it went along. And then the ending mm-hmm. is just like, what? And but then when I went back and watched it the second time, and I knew what was being set up and everything, I caught little moments um, that, like, um, uh, there's there's a teacher who is... The teacher's trying to talk to Vivian about um, uh, the biology teacher who got killed. Who he, The teacher was going to go fishing with the biology teacher. I don't know if that's... I don't know what that means. We're going fishing. I don't know if that that was a uh, slang for something. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, but there's a moment where he's he's almost sort of interrogating Vivian about. Um, uh, he said he mentioned you on the phone and he was very upset. I'm sorry, Mr. Clausen. Oh, I think we're all sorry, Vivian. The kids really love Carl, didn't you? He was a wonderful teacher. It was a lot more than that, Mr. Clausen, but you know that. Yeah, I do. We were supposed to go fishing together on Saturday. Neither one of us was very good at it. <laughs> uh, the reason uh, I wanted to talk to you, Carl called me last night, late, 10.30, quarter of 11. He was on his way to my place when, when it happened. He, uh, he was upset, and he wanted to talk about you. About me? That's what he said. I thought you might have some idea what it was about. No. No, n- none at all. Well, it, we were supposed to induce false pregnancy in the rats and then cut them open. I, I couldn't. Well, he wouldn't come over my place at 11 o'clock at night over something like that. He would have handled that himself. Mr. Clausen, I wanted to ask you, uh, can I take up a collection? I think the class would like to send flowers. <laughs> it's very thoughtful of you. And so when I first saw that, I, I, it didn't quite register with me that she's using her witchy juju there to sort of zap him and, and make him forget his train of thought. I didn't catch that the first time, but I did the second time. So, yeah, I, I, I quite enjoyed it. I didn't think, like I said, Juanita Bartlett, I don't, I don't think I've seen a script with her name on it where she's, she is, they, it's let me down. I've always enjoyed it. And this one I thought was, yeah, really worked. Yay. Okay, Justin, tell me about your relationship with Midnight Offerings and what you thought of it. 
Well, it's uh, 1981, of course, is uh, for me the kind of hallowed year of uh, genre cinema. Um, so uh, it's one that when I was collecting videos, secondhand videos, let's say way back in the midst of time when no one else wanted them, you can get them very cheap. Um, the, I found Midnight Offerings on VHS, very dusty box. It must have been released. I'm not sure who put it out in the UK, but it was. Uh, I picked it up, uh, got home, opened the box, and there was a completely different film inside. And I seem to have this problem with uh, made-for-TV horror movies because I think I, rem- I remember telling you, Amanda, though I got um, the Fred Walton Trapped, um, the Kathleen Kin- Quinlan, mm-hmm. which um, I'm not sure if that was no, it was a TV movie, wasn't it? I feel um, like it was made for cable, made like for cable. basic cable. Yeah. But then I got home and it was actually the Josh, not Josh, uh, um, uh, oh James Brolin, James Brolin Trapped, the one set in the supermarket, the dogs. Dogs, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a TV movie 70s. for sure. Which is also called Trapped and was also put out on C- by CIC Video in the UK. So I, it wasn't until we maybe a year later I tried to watch it and it was a completely different movie. So, so I hadn't caught up with this until actually probably a couple of years ago, uh, and it was not one that I saw when I saw and I, you know, I say I did see a, a rash of the um, made TV movies that released to UK TV um, usually a year or so after they played in in the states, um, but it wasn't one of those. So. I obviously I had an interest in the the two main characters because Melissa Anderson and Mary McDonough mm-hmm. were both in slash movies in the early 80s Happy Birthday to Me and Mortuary respectively so it was fun to see those two paired up and especially seeing um, having grown up having watched Little House on Prairie and the Waltons as well not very horror specific but um, those are those are kind of uh, shows that were on in the mid 70s when we were kids in the afternoon um, so I remember watching those so it was fun to see them both in it and especially Melissa Sue Anderson who who um uh, again in Happy Birthday to Me she plays the you know they've got the blonde hair she's very very similar to um how she you know how how she was looking in uh, I think in Little House on the Prairie um but she comes her playing this kind of evil witchy poo character I was a bit disappointed she didn't go the full kind of goth chick Susie Sue <laughs> <laughs> I did think that the dowdy look it's a shame she wasn't a bit more um, went for a little bit more kind of goth ex, you know, exotica with it because she did look a bit like I don't know um, uh, a kind of a sort of teenage um, accountant uh, <laughs> a little bit yeah rather than a witch um, and so I yeah I enjoyed it I mean I thought it was interesting the dynamic that you've got you know these two teenage girls kind of fighting over this kind of hunky teenage boy who really has nothing to do in the movie apart from look concerned and run around and be worried the whole time the the two juggernauts in this are both the the teenage girl protagonist the good witch and the bad witch um so that was an interesting dynamic i was a little bit disappointed that um the canoe didn't come in the the finale flying through the air because (laughs) the whole (laughs) the whole scene with her making the canoe go from one end to the pond to the other and come back and i was kind of hoping it would fly through the air um and uh knock out the sense and at the end that didn't happen um, yeah, no, it's kind of I, I love everything from 1981. It kind of looked the look of it. It felt like it could slip into um, a slasher movie at any point. Um, it kind of yeah, it it was a lot of fun. I mean, it's it was kind of simplistic in a lot of ways that um, I kind of guess in some ways the joy of TV movies there's a joy to them that sometimes they don't go as far as the theatrical releases would perhaps um and there's a certain safety to them i don't know if that's quite the right way but comfiness perhaps uh so you kind of know you're not going to get extreme gore or nudity or violence or swearing 
Um, but there usually is some kind of twist or something in there. And, there, you know, there was with this. Certainly we haven't spoiled the ending, so I'm not going to say it just yet until everyone's had the chance to say something. But the the ending was, um, you know, I remember first seeing it, I was generally surprised quite how um, violent, not in so much that it's a violent end, well, it is, but it's just almost it's it, it comes so quickly and so definitively ends the movie that it's um, but in a satisfying way that... Uh, that that was a surprise to me so uh yeah i i enjoyed it it's good good fun especially the kind of um i did i love the scene in the workshop with the kind of the carrie-esque which of course is a movie which obviously was influence influences movie is with the the pyrotechnics of the flying um uh, chisels and um buzzsaws and things like that flying around the workshop um yeah so uh, yeah i had a lot of fun with it awesome we're so glad um nate i think you're a fan of this aren't you Oh, yes, I'm a huge fan of this movie. Um, I love Melissa Sue Anderson in this movie. Her character is so different from the one in Happy Birthday to me. Um, I just, I, I love um, the scene where her and uh, Catherine, is it Damon? Damon? Oh, Damon, yeah, that's how yeah. I see it anyway. Um, I, I love the scene between them in the kitchen when she yes. makes her clutch the glass and then makes her break it. I know I'm not going to live in a dump like this for the rest of my life. I'm not going to marry someone like Simple Simon in there. He's a good, decent man who loves you with all his heart. His choice, not mine. Vivian. You had the power and you just threw it away. You settled for this. Was that supposed to inspire me somehow? You could have had anything you wanted. It's not a gift, Vivian. Don't you see that? It's a curse. It got me my wheels. It's going to get me where I want to go. That's all you care about. Sorry if that offends you. It doesn't offend me. It breaks my heart. I did this to you. Oh, now is this where you start crying and tell me to be a good little girl? Look, just because you chose not to use it doesn't mean I have to. I want to know the truth. I think you were scared, and I think you were stupid. I'm neither one. I'm going to have what's out there. I'm going to have it all. What about the things you won't have? It's a trade-off, Vivian. You know that. What about the things you won't ever enjoy? The things you won't ever feel? What about the loneliness? Don't tell me you don't feel that. I've seen it. I mean, I think it was interesting to think of this teenage girl having, like, these powers, but she doesn't have the maturity to deal with them. I mean, she takes moody teenager to a whole new level with these powers <laughs> that she's got. Um, I just – I found it um, to be very interesting. And also the mother and daughter dynamic reminded me of another movie that I'm not going to say because it's a spoiler – but there's another movie that I love, which features um, a mom and daughter that have to have a little battle. Oh, yeah. I think you know what I'm talking about, Amanda. I think so. I um, almost mentioned it. Uh, oh, really? My, but I didn't. Yeah. But I, I'm not going to. Yeah. I just it's, it's a spoiler. It's, yeah. yeah, it's too much of a spoiler. But, no, Midnight Offerings is great. I, um, like Justin, I love the scene in the, uh, the workshop in yeah. school where you know, they're – kind of having a battle that it is suspenseful but it's just 
some parts, I mean, it's just, you know, cheesy in the right kind of way where she's going to make a few two-by-fours fall on Robin, and I'm like, that's not really going to kill her. I mean, I've had a two-by-four fall on me before. I'm alive. <laughs> on more than one occasion, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is Hit that me mean? in the head a few times. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and... Um, yeah, Melissa Sue Anderson, she is great as the, you know, she's like kind of, it's it's sort of like the main girl, the Regina George of the school also has witch powers. Um, she's like so vicious and brutal in this movie. And her mom even tries to warn her, you know, you're setting yourself up for a life of loneliness because everybody will be basically too afraid of you to ever want to get close to you. And But she's fine with it. Um, I think the power has just kind of gone to her head. And, um, I mean, she, uh, just cares more about the power than anything else. I feel like all that matters is what she wants. And I do think Mary McDonough did really good as Robin, but I just didn't feel they gave Robin a lot to work with. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I never thought they let Robin have just this kind of badass moment where she finally realized her powers and used them. I mean, it doesn't really happen like that. I don't know, it's an interesting dynamic. I watched The Craft recently. Have you guys yes. all seen The Craft? Yeah, sure. I just saw yeah. it at the drive-in like three weeks uh -huh. ago. So good. And, and, and some of it reminded me kind of like, you know, Robin uh, versus Vivian kind of reminded me of Nancy versus Sarah in The Craft. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, I saw a lot of similarities there. And uh, Justin would probably be happy, though, that Nancy did go full on goth. Yes, she craft. does. Yes. So, yeah, you'd like that. Um, well, whereas also... the closest Melissa Sue Anderson got was the cloak thing she wears towards the end, right? Yeah, yeah. But I would say they're they're very comparable characters because I was thinking about this, and we actually have a piece of feedback that mentions the craft as well. But the um, fruit vault character, she um, gets kind of drunk on the power of Manon is the is the uh -huh. spirit that they're praying to or whatever. And and Melissa Sue Anderson has the exact same kind of. Well, except we get we come with her like if like she was already in the middle like so Frieza Balk has a transformation where she starts off kind of like an edgy teen with a lot of problems and then she gets this power and then it destroys her in the end whereas we're sort of dropped into Melissa Sue Anderson's character in Midnight Offerings uh, halfway into the journey that Frieza Balk was taking where she's just drunk with power just to begin with right so but I think that they're totally comparable characters and it's interesting that you brought that up and that somebody else brought it up that we see all these comparisons to the craft in it I I th I think the the thing with Viv for me for me is that um uh the the reason why she doesn't go full on like which I mean like it would have been great if like she was on a broom during the final scene or something like circling the 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 pyre where she had um Robin in but um she doesn't does she no she doesn't I'm thinking mm -hmm. something else um uh but I I think the thing I like about Viv is Viv is like um I don't know she's like a Heather. Or something, you know. She she mm, wants to yes. be she wants to be the head cheerleader. She wants to be she wants to go out with the the, the quarterback. Um, so she's not going to go full on goth or, or too crazy witchy mm, yeah. because then everyone's going to be like, "What's up with her?" So she has to look like like a teenage accountant. She has to look like the girl you know who would you know run for class president or something like that. So so she, and she gets to you know go a little crazy sometimes at, at night. You know, put on her sweater with the hood or something like that but um but while she's in school she has to look like melissa sue anderson because if she looks like anything else people are gonna be like no we're not sure about yeah. her i was just kind of hoping sense. 
towards the end that we would get more of a uh, do you remember the climactic scene in Summer of Fear when the witch sure. like yes. her hair gets really big and her eyes oh. are glowing and she makes the door explode I was hoping for something like that but I, I mean I still love the movie a lot but I was uh, I was hoping for a little more um, I don't know how to phrase it like over the topness more in the battles. battles yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah but I mean no still a great movie though fantastic I love it I've seen it many times I will probably see it many more. <laughs> yeah, I've seen this movie so many. I saw it as a kid, and I loved it. And when I started getting back into TV movies as an adult, I got a bootleg of it. And the bootleg of it had pretty good visual quality, but you had to turn the sound on your TV like all the way up just to hear it. And I didn't care. I watched it all the time because I love this movie. As as I get older, and I, I lecture on this movie, actually, um, because of the, some of the stuff it does, and it's comparable to some other supernatural films, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. As I get older, I see, like, I don't want to say the problems because I love this movie, but it does things that are really interesting in terms of are maybe a little negative message sending um, for women who want to be empowered or have autonomy because they're, they seem to be punished for it in this film and there's many teen supernatural films made for TV that have that same quality to it. But, but aside from that, which we may talk about later, it's just a joy for me to watch this movie because it's so teen angsty and it's fun. And I love the two lead girls. I agree that uh, Mary McDonough for me, I think Mary McDonough, it's not so much she's not given a lot to deal with as I feel like, and I don't know how, what sequence they shot this film in, but I always feel like in those opening scenes when she first meets David, she's kind of stiff. And as the film progresses, she kind of gets more and more into the character and, um, and, and grows with it. And, and at the end when she's not the end, but when they start like practicing her powers and stuff is when I think she really shines in the part and becomes Robin to me. Like, uh, whereas I think Melissa Sue Anderson just hits the ground running and you can't even like keep up with her because she's so amazing in this film. She's so amazing in this movie. I've never seen a performance quite like this before. And, um, and it's just so much fun to watch her. And if it had just been her talking and nobody around her, it would still be the most enjoyable movie ever made because her performance is so incredible. And I also think um, Patrick Cassidy, who plays David, is really good in this. I think this was one of his first films. Maybe his first. I think it's one of his first. And um, and he's, got, he's very charming and um, very likable. And it's interesting because he's not as famous. So he has a really famous brothers, David and Sean are his brothers, David Cassidy and Sean Cassidy. And he, I think, used to call himself the non-famous Cassidy, like the one nobody knows. But I, I kind of think as an actor, he's really underrated. And um, I think he starred in the Dirty Dancing TV series. I don't know if anybody here remembers that, but it was very good. And um, and I think he played the um, Patrick Swayze character in it. Um, anyway, I love, love this movie. It comes from my childhood. Um all the way up till today and I hold it very dear to my heart and I watch it a couple times a year. It's just one of those movies that just, I can't get enough of it. And, um, and I love everybody in it. And I'm glad you mentioned Catherine Damon, Nate, because she's also a standout for me in this movie. Um, she's a really underrated actress too. She did a couple of TV movies. She did one called friendship secrets and lies that I also lecture on. That's really interesting. And she's fantastic in that. And I guess people would know her best as playing, um, is it Mary Campbell on soap? I believe so. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, um, and she's great on that as well. And she kind of died young. I think she might've died either after Webster got canceled or during the making of Webster. She was one of the neighbors on Webster with Eugene Roche, um, another famous character actor. And, uh, and I remember when, um, now I can't remember his name, who played Bert on soap. 
Oh, Richard, was it Richard Mulligan? Mulligan. When Richard Mulligan won the Emmy for Empty Nest, he actually paid tribute to Catherine Damon in his speech. And I never forgot that. Um, oh. And and then he passed away kind of young, too. So it's all sad. But <laughs> I love her so much. And I know I'm making it really depressing. But like, um, but like the actors in this are really bringing their A game, which I love. I love when I watch movies like this where you can kind of look at the script and be like, oh, it's teen witches fighting for school turf which is essentially what it is in its premise but the actors come in and and the, and they they just bring 110 percent to the table right and so that's what they did here and it makes me love it even more because i know that the, the people cared about the film that they were making and um and it warms my heart on so many levels so yeah so i love this movie too and it's an old old favorite and um and luckily it's had a pretty big cult following over the years. Uh, when I had Jeff Nelson from Scream Factory on the show uh, a couple years ago, he said that this is his most requested TV movie title from social media. People contact him all the time, and they're like, could you please put this out on Blu-ray? But I think that there must be some licensing issues or something with it, because I'm sure he would if he could, because I think this one would, would sell like gangbusters. But for whatever reason... It hasn't had a legitimate home video release that I'm aware of in the States. And I was surprised to hear it had a home release in the UK because yeah. um, why they're not here. But that happens a lot, I think, with those movies. Do you know, did it play theatrically by any chance, do you know, in England, Justin? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, there were several TV movies uh, like Battlestar Galactica um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Jewel uh, famously played UK screens and uh, quite a few films I've played theatrically outside the United States. Um, not that I'm aware of, no. I mean, it's the other the, the thing that struck me, actually, with this one and the other one we're covering, of, if you add in the adverts, obviously we'd, we'd watch them without the adverts, but they would be running for well over two hours, wouldn't they, with the adverts, as they are, they're an hour, three quarters, which is quite a long... Um, for you know, I'm a bit of a firm believer when it comes to kind of popcorn horror uh, genre movies that, you know, if you can stick to 90, 89, 90 minutes, it's probably yeah. the best. Um, so I, there may possibly have had any criticism of this of either movies and may have felt like there's possibly a little bit of filler in in some of it but presumably there was a reason I mean if anyone would know Amanda it's going to be you why these TV movies would run to um, an, an hour and three quarters and obviously more with adverts was that just about fitting airtime at the time was that, was that a standard thing for yeah movies? just a just a little brief history in the TV movie. So when they first came out, they were only 74 minutes long because they were being plugged into 90-minute um, programming slots. And um, and so when you think about that, that's only 16 minutes of ads. That's unheard of today. Like if you watch anything on network television, it's going to have like way, way more ads than that. So the TV movie would come in for the two-hour block. So if it's running for an hour and 45 minutes, that means that there's only 15 minutes of commercials, which isn't that bad. I do think most TV movies average around 90 minutes. I guess maybe the commercials got more, there were more of them as the programs, uh, you know, uh, the decades wore on or whatever, and they had more ads in their programming. But they were essentially um, not that long to begin with. They were well under the 90-minute time slot that we think of the average movie running. And they were very quick and to the point in the 70s, but then the, the programming blocks got bigger, possibly because they were so popular that they figured, well, why not cover two hours in, a night? And then we don't have to worry about finding that half hour to fill. And originally when the TV movie, it's getting a little off topic, but originally when the TV movie first came to be, there was a blueprint for it. And that's the reason why it ran 90 minutes was because they would start it at a half hour block. So like at 830 instead of eight. And that way um, 
people who wanted to watch the TV movie wouldn't start watching another program at eight on another channel. They would stay on that network knowing that at the half hour mark that some, the movie would start. And so it was actually a total like manipulative programming model when they first came out. And that's why I think they started at 90 minutes, but, um, but then they grew. So, but I don't know exactly like I've never really looked too much at advertising within the TV movie, except that I did read a really amazing um, essay. Somebody wrote about, does it change the context of the film? the ads mm-hmm. that they put in its place. Cause they talked about when the burning bed originally aired, they had all kinds of ads for like abused wives and things like that. And then when it reran on lifetime, they actually, the first time it ran, they, they were promoting a show on lifetime, a different show that they were producing themselves. That was about women who stayed with abusive husbands and they would drop it into the burning bed, which is the total opposite message that the burning bed had. Right. And so, so like this person was asking whether or not the context of the film changes for you based on the commercial. So that's really where my mind goes when I think about advertising. But so I don't know if I can answer your question. That was a really long winded response. That, that's what I was. Um, that's what I was thinking when I was watching this uh, uh, minute office, especially at the end when you see that very, you know, the, the final image and then it fades to black you get a commercial break, and then it fades back into the same image of the credits roll. I just thought, what commercials might they have, they have shown then that wouldn't completely ruin the mood that had just yeah. been created right there? And that I do, I do tend to think of that. And I probably said this before on here when I watch the movie. Sometimes, what what commercials would have would would they have shown, and and if if the structure of the movie if it feels different when it has the commercials in the place where they're supposed to be. If there if there's something like with a like maybe a scene that I think is filler or something with the structure that um if there the commercial break had been there, it would have like not quite fixed itself. But if it would have made more sense if everything had stopped, I would have seen a commercial for some dog food, some razors, uh, some tires, something like that, and then we would have got back to the uh, the movie. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting thing to think about, and that's why I love when people upload the original airings with the commercials yes. because yes. it gives you a general idea of what um, the audience was consuming at the time, and and also how it's meant to play because these are structured uh, very rigidly. You know, the networks had like blueprints of like the successful TV movie. And I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole lecture and I won't go into it, but there were components that they really wanted in a lot of these films to reach certain demographics, you know, and I'm sure they factored in when the commercials would come too. So like I took a writing class taught by the guy who taught visiting hours, right. And the spell, uh, Brian Taggart. And, um, he said that, um, one of the best formulas for writing a horror movie was to have something exciting happen every seven pages. And so like he had a blueprint set up for himself and the TV movie had something kind of similar. Right. So like before commercial break, this, needs to happen right or it's like soap operas you know like a little mini cliffhanger or something like that and so yeah so watching without ads is a totally different experience and um i would be curious to see if anybody has an upload of this or has a copy of this on vhs somewhere from when it originally aired it'd be pretty fascinating also i'm gonna talk a little bit about what it aired against which is interesting as well mm-hmm. but anyway let's um i guess in a way we've kind of talked about a lot of the elements of the film already so just briefly you know it's like i said the premise is basically like good witch versus bad witch kind of dueling over school turf. Not that Robin, um, Mary Beth uh, McDonough's character wants the school turf, but she sort of shows up as this outsider and Vivian knows that she's got this power and she's already asserted her, this is her territory. And so she feels threatened by that and not just the property of the school itself, but clearly David is the big um, trophy of the contest. 
right? And so, and I love, Justin, that you brought out that he's kind of like there to sort of look nervous and run around and not do much. And, you know, I hadn't thought of that, but there's definitely a gender flip here and like who the important characters are and who is the object. And, um, and I, I never thought of that before and I don't know why. And it's fascinating to me and I love it. And it kind of makes me think of, they don't do it so much here, but in, you know, in Summer Party Massacre 2, one of the things I love so much about that film is that they reverse the male gaze. And so Crystal Bernard's love interest is shot in ways that you would normally shoot women. Like when he's playing the football game at the beginning and he's in like his shorts and the camera shot is from down below. And so you get this whole kind of look at his beautiful body as it moves up. And, and that's how we would normally look at women in film. Yet they've changed the, the angle and the gender. But they haven't changed the angle. They've changed the gender. And now we're looking at a man as the sexual object. And so they don't necessarily do that here, but he's definitely the object in the film. And, um, and he does do a couple of heroic things. Like he saves um, Robin from a fire by stalking her basically. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause he goes to her house and then sits outside in his van and waits till something happens. Very endless love. I don't know if anybody saw endless love, but there's a similar scene in that. <laughs> and, and that's about a stalker. Right. So that's kind of what he's doing, but he's sort of like, he is, he is there to be pretty and to be desired. And, um, and the two girls are there to like, propel the story forward so that's really great dan you want to say something i was just going to mention the uh is it the emt in that scene where her house burns yeah who is when he's talking to david he's he's one of the most helpful emts ever because david keeps saying well maybe she should go to the hospital you know what man i think she's going to be okay and he's very helpful but he does say one line that both times i watched it i thought that's a bit of a strange line which is oh one thing um you're probably going to want to find her uh somewhere else to stay tonight because she probably doesn't want to sleep in a burnt out house and i thought would that be something where if someone set your house on fire and the like the interior was completely gutted would you go back and spend the night there i don't that i've never heard that before i would think you'd automatically go somewhere else i but i don't know i don't know it's a witch world yeah i think it was to emphasize that she was alone you know what I mean? Like kind of, I guess, but you're right. It, it will. So also in the feed, and I'm spoiling this guy's feedback, but also in the feedback, the, the same person who likened it to the craft, he mentions that like, because her dad comes back home and he goes and he's staying in his bedroom at the end of the film. And, and the feedbacker, his name's Chad. He's like, isn't part of their house burnt down? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that would, they should probably be in a hotel or something. But it didn't even occur to me when I was watching it because the rest of the house looks fine, right? Yeah, and so yeah. I guess they're just doing their business in the rest of the house. So it's kind of a funny, like, doesn't make sense moment in the movie. I just I just had one thing. Um, well, I have I, I, I could say a thousand things. But I, I just wanted to mention that the, the, one of the things that that didn't quite didn't quite sink in with me properly i i understand what they were doing is that both families like like when sherm and diane are talking and isn't sherm a great name i was just watching a charlie brown special the other day with shermy in it and it's just sherm's a great name you don't see enough sherms um but there's something about when you see like sherm and diane and you see robin's dad um that that you have to kind of keep reminding yourself that these daughters that you're seeing are the seventh daughters they yes. had and they each have there are 12 other daughters out there somewhere none of them are at home it's it's just kind of weird that you you would think you know this this is around the time you know eight is enough was still on you know, and mm-hmm. the house in that, and eight is enough, is packed with so many daughters. I still don't know their names, no matter how many episodes I watch. Yet this, each of these families is specifically said to have six more daughters, none of whom we ever see. 
or barely hear yeah. about, which is a little which is a little weird to me because I it, I kind of lost a little focus on that on occasion. I had to kind of keep kind of because usually if they do like a seventh son of a seventh son, you'll see some of the other sons. But with this, they're just mentioned. Sherm complains a lot about them, but but they're just mentioned vaguely. Yeah, you know that is kind of funny because I I think of the I think it more so with Robin having seven sisters, and I don't know why that is, because I think because there's definitely a class system thing happening here too. Because Vivian comes from a lower income family, you can tell her dad works like is in construction, the mom's a housewife, and they don't have a lot of money, and they've somehow eked out an existence for seven other people in their home. And I sort of make sense to me that they've all moved because it doesn't seem like a house I would want to stay in as yeah. an adult. And if Vivian's already like a junior or senior, I could see all the other daughters being older, not wanting to be in the house. But, you know, I did think a little bit about with Robin because they live in a really big house and they, and even though her dad has a lot of problems with their powers, he's a real good dad. He tries so hard to like understand this thing that she's going through and he gets frustrated by it because they're running all the time and, and they're being ostracized, but like he clearly loves his daughter, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so I did think about there. You think there would be other women there at the yes. house or giving some support to the family that's left, you know. So that kind of makes sense to me. So this movie is basically about two witches fighting over turf, and there's there's only a couple of like showdown scenes. There's the the final scene, and then there's the one before it in the shop, which is where I think all the special effects kind of happened. Really, is in that is in that scene, and and it almost feels like they're shooting their wad in in the um, shop class. But I think that the end is really strong, and I don't know if we want to go ahead and talk about that, since I think we've kind of covered a lot of the film itself, without maybe the exception of, I wanted to clarify that I think Marion Ross's character, I know, Dan, you weren't sure who she was, but she um, had helped solve a crime, like they were looking for a missing person, and then somebody had written about her in the newspaper, and uh, David had read the article. And so he sought her out when things were happening with Vivian to get background, okay. and and so they became friendly. I was going to say I did wonder it kind of reminded me of the you do care uh, character in Suspiria, who just kind of comes along mm. for a oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I figured that was just at like Marion Ross's house. That was just like, hey Marion, can we just come to your house and just shoot a couple scenes? Sure, come on over. Happy Days was on hiatus, no problem. My daughter's making cookies. Just write it in. Yes, exactly. Write it in. (laughs) She's so good in this because she, too, is also playing sort of against type because Mrs. C on Happy Days is not a stupid character, but she plays kind of a flighty kind of mom Mm -hmm. in that. And um, and Emily has definitely got her shit together in the film, yeah. and she's very wise and, and calm, and um, yeah. and she's motherly in a different way. I think a lot of these actors probably were really drawn to the characters uh, that they were offered in this movie because they were so different from their normal characters. Because when you think about it, Gordon Jump, I guess, would best be known as Mr. Carlson on WKRP, and he was also kind of a flighty uh, really idealistic, wide-eyed sort of character. And here he's really kind of cynical, right? Because he's been working yeah. so hard at such a shitty job for so long that, like, it, life has kind of, like, worn him down, with the exception of his daughter, right, who's, like, the, the apple of his eye. And that's kind of interesting. And, of course, we know Robin Prentice is a little different for Mary McDonough, mostly because of the type of character it is, because she comes from a kind of a dark past and I, I, I think she's obviously the good witch, but she's different. She's edgier, right, than Aaron would have been on the Waltons. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Melissa Sue Anderson just blew the top off of everything in this role as a Vivian. So so I think casting-wise, it was really interesting to see 
it gave them a lot to work with, I think, mm-hmm. you know, but, but the movie itself doesn't hinge on the ending, but I think there's something about the ending that really sticks with people because it's not at all. Which are, did anybody predict how this was going to end the first time they saw it? No, no. I no. did. I did predict that a certain character would play a part, but I didn't know it would end the way it did. If you know what I mean. Yeah. I thought that a certain yes. character would show up at the right moment. So, so let's talk about the ending then. So there's this. So what happens is, is that um, Emily, with the Marion Ross character, tells Robin. Okay, so Vivian says in two days you're going to die or whatever, and she means it. So just try to avoid her for two days, right? And I don't know what to do for you because she is so strong, and you're still learning your stuff, and it's just better if you can just maybe leave town. And she's like, well, I can't because my dad is very sick because Vivian had made um, the dad give him some strange illness that they can't identify. And she's like, he's home now, and I just can't drag him 100 miles from here. So uh, so she decides that she's going to just hang out at her house with David until after midnight. Apparently midnight is the cutoff hour of that two-day marker. And so she gets a phone call from Vivian, and she's like, look, I'm going to make your dad sick again if you don't show up at the school in 15 minutes or whatever. And it's like 1130 at night. And so she sneaks out of the house with uh, David or her dad, unaware of anything that's happening. And she shows up at the school, and Vivian's got on her cloak with the hood, and she's ready, right? And I can't remember if there's already a bonfire there, but that's a very important part of the the mm-hmm. scene. And they kind of start to duke it out, and it's clear that Robin can't really do it by herself. And who shows up but Vivian's mom, Diane? Because this whole movie been building up to like how the magic and it's actually kind of poignant so that scene in the kitchen is actually a really poignant scene because because it's talking about how the mother and daughter have sort of been ripped apart by these powers which the mother has given the daughter and sort of unwillingly she didn't want to have a seventh daughter it kind of happened and she knew that her daughter was going to develop these powers but instead of them bonding over having the similar strength within themselves it tears them apart right and not uncommon in these tv movies by the way and um and so she shows up and she's like, I've got to basically figure out what to do with my daughter uh, so she doesn't murder this girl. And so so her, so her, Catherine Damon's character, the mom, and Robin, the Mary McDonough character, are sort of um, harnessing their powers together. And, and they've sort of been able to block Vivian for a period of time. But then um, something happens, I can't remember, and uh, it kind of the power gets stopped. And Vivian's ready to do whatever Vivian's going to do. And her mom runs up to her with all the force in her body, grabs her and pushes them both into the burning bonfire and kills them. It's so freaking harrowing because she murdered herself and her daughter to save this girl that she doesn't know. Right. Because she knows that the only way out, I guess, I guess the way she's viewing it in those final moments is that Vivian's gone too far and there's no way to bring her in to, to understand that these powers aren't just for willy-nilly and to make yourself popular at school, right? And at the same time, I've given her these powers and I've destroyed this girl, so I have to destroy myself in the process. I think that's why this scene is so poignant, because I think she thinks she has to kill herself and her daughter. She has to, right? There's no other alternative for her. But what's so great is afterwards, David comes running up and Robin's like, oh my god, her mom threw her into the Pyre, and he's like, "Yeah, I watched it. Where were you? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I was just off in the back watching while you were almost getting it's, murdered. It's too freaky for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be like, you're all standard. the ones with the powers, not me. <laughs> no. so I just sat in my here. truck. Yeah. 
So let's all let's all just talk about our initial responses to that ending. Um, Dan, since this is your first time viewing, what did you think? Yeah, I didn't. Um, I I didn't really expect that at all. I like the um, I like the fact that that Vivian is going to um, uh, puts puts Robin in the middle of that fire because that's what you do with witches. You burn them. I like that that she's having a little fun with it as she's going to burn this uh, woman to death. Um, but yeah, the moment when the mom sh- I, I I had a feeling that the mom would show up. Um, because you see the mom, I think, right after Vivian leaves to go to the school, you see the mom, like, in the back of the shot, giving her a look like, oh, now I'm going to have to do it. And, um, but yeah, I, I really didn't expect that. I, I was sort of hoping, yeah, that the, the, the mom and the, and, and, um, and Robin would sort of harness their powers and maybe knock Vivian out or something, and they'd, they'd haul out Robin out of the fire at the last minute as it all, like, collapsed or something. I didn't expect her to just start saying louder and louder, it's all my fault, it's all my fault, and then grab her daughter and leap into the flames. I didn't expect that. And it's, it's one of those, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those moments where you hear a brief scream and then it stops. And then the camera just kind of sits there on the fire, and you don't see any bodies jumping around or anything like that, but you know they're burning to death in there. And it's really horrific the more I think about it. And it's just, and then when it, like I said, when it goes to the commercial break, and then it comes back from the commercial break, and the music's playing, and the credits are rolling, that fire's still burning in the background. <laughs> they're still burning to death in the background. And it's just like, it's one of those, it's one of those sort of, you know, uh, you know, post Night of Living Dead, early '80s kind of crazy endings where you're like, "Oh my God!" kind of thing, and it's just it's 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 very downbeat in one way, in another way it's good, but in another way it's just terrific. And, and but I I thought it's a very powerful um, ending to the movie, and I think like I said, the movie got better for me as it went along the first time, and that ending really sort of sealed the deal. And then when I went back the second time, it was I liked it liked it much more. So yeah, it's a it's a hell of an ending. Hell of yeah, an ending. it is. <laughs> Justin, what do you think? Do you remember? I, it's it's kind of a shocking. It was kind of a shocking ending. I remember watching it the first time because it's so, it's so sudden, isn't it? Um, yeah. But, uh, and actually, the, the the way they did it, the 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 stunt actually looks quite well. It looks real, doesn't it? In so much they they don't cut away from them going into the flames. You actually see them both disappearing into this bonfire which presumably vivian wanted two days because she was building this massive bonfire wherever it was on on school grounds but it yeah so it has this kind of finality to it i always have the i don't know i'm a bit like i know nathan's always kind of wondering what happens to the friends and family of the victims in these horrors. <laughs> but i always wonder what would happen they kind of after the credits roll you know you've got these two characters stood there with this burning housewife and a classmate in the bonfire it's quite how you explain uh, what's happened to the police it's going to be yeah. it, it'd be interesting to see uh, uh, I watched um, we just a very quick side we watched um, for Patreon um, uh, Dolly Dearest and the oh. film ends with um, um, the family's livelihood completely destroyed um, but at least they've got rid of the, the evil dolls so it's you kind of I'm thinking afterwards the, the whole the whole livelihood is now in dust or gone up in smoke so it's yeah it's, it's it, i always kind of wonder if they you know if they did the midnight offerings too which obviously they didn't they might explain it but uh yeah it was um considering there was such the um it's a kind of i 
kind of uh, not after school carry, but you know the idea of they they were the the, the flying um, uh, chisels and all the kind of pyrotechnics and the, the canoe and things like that. There was almost a bit of a Scooby Doo esque, slightly childlike kind of the kind of cusp of innocent, you know, of yeah, of child, childhood into adolescence. It felt like they're playing with that throughout. That these two teenage girls were on the cusp of becoming women and the, the power of becoming women. And so there was something quite safe and cosy about the film up to that point. But that that kind of when I said mentioned it about being violent, it wasn't violent in the way, say, Mrs. Voorhees being decapitated at the end of Friday the 13th of graphic violence, but actually emotionally violent, I kind of guess is a good way of putting it. So, yeah, it kind of and obviously it wraps up with the whole idea of, you know, the Salem witch trials and witches being burnt at the stake and all those kind of things throughout history. So it, it in, in a lot of ways, it kind of it it fits with expectations but i kind of guess i kind of too was expecting i don't know so possibly a slightly less um uh, uh sudden resolution yeah but, um, it's finality yeah it's kind of interesting because when you think about it the only people who know that um the mom and the daughter had these immense like supernatural powers are the mom and the daughter and now Vivian, I mean, not Vivian, now Robin and David, but they're not going to say anything because they left the scene. Right. So when they uncover the bodies at the end, like, like say there is an after the credits, like Sherm is going to have no idea what happened. He's just going to know that oh, there were, he's going to, Oh boy. Yeah, poor Sherm. Yeah. Like nobody's going to really understand how a mother and daughter ended up in a giant bonfire burned to death. Like nobody, except these two people that can never tell anybody, you know? And when you think about it, that's, it's really traumatic for the people who are uh, carrying that secret. It's sort of like, um, I know what you did last summer, right? Where like, um, like them hiding that secret destroyed their lives. So it'd be kind of interesting to see what like that would have done to Robin later on in life, you know, when she becomes more um, at home with her own powers. Uh, Yeah, that's kind of interesting. It, It just always, I don't know. It's just such a dark ending for a movie that's not very dark. You know, and I love it because it's so unexpected, but it always just kind of stops me for a second. Um, Nate, do you remember when you saw this for the first time, how you felt? Well, when I saw it for the first time, I was really young, so I don't know that I really thought much of anything except, oh, man, she threw a a power saw at that girl, Um, (laughs) you know, in the woodshop scene. Speaking of which, um, I think that if I was doing commercials for this, I would have done like power tool commercials. I'd be like, look how sturdy this saw is after being thrown across a room <laughs> that would have kept the momentum of the film going i think but um i don't remember what i thought honestly um it's sort of like when i talk about friday the 13th part five and i say that i watched it when i was a little kid so i did not see where the ending was going at all even though as an adult it's very obvious yeah so I don't know. I guess just uh, it's just it has to do with the age in which I saw it. I feel if I had seen it as an adult, I mean, for the first time, then you know I would definitely agree that um, you know I mean I just wonder like what what was the story? I mean, can you imagine like the next day like when the story broke out in the newspapers like local housewife and daughter burns to death in fire on school grounds? I mean, I just don't know what people would think about it. I mean, would they think that, I mean, I'd be like, you would not know how they ended up there. And like you said, the people that do know, they can't tell who's going to believe them. Yeah. So it's like just a secret that if this would actually make, they could do a really good sequel with this, with uh, the Robin character, you know, had they thought 
that far ahead. But this movie, we'll talk about when we get to the background. It didn't do very well in the ratings, so that's possibly why there's no sequel. But, um, yeah, so it's got a really strong ending. It's like this kind of light, teen angsty kind of film, like I said. And I think you called it um, After School Carry, Justin, which is a really great way to sort of um, tagline it, right? And and so you're you're kind of thinking, oh, okay, here we're going to go, and they're going to have a showdown. And, and like you guys said, like there's going to be some way to like take away Vivian's powers and save Robin. But that's not really the way – I mean, it goes that way, but not in the way you're expecting. So it's, it's sort of shocking that they went that way. Um, but I appreciate it because I think it's kind of one of the movies that uh, – one of the reasons that helps the movie endure is because it does have these things in it that you kind of aren't expecting. And it does have sort of an emotional impact because of it. So um, – so I think we should just get to the background, but um, but we all would recommend Midnight Offerings, is that right? Definitely, yeah. Yes. Oh yes. Yay! And and Midnight Offerings too. Sherm story. <laughs> oh wait, yeah, nothing, uh, nothing. This evil ever dies, or this time is personal would have to be the subtitle. Oh, nice. Yeah, you always have nice. to use that after your two. Um, mm-hmm. so this aired on February twenty seventh, nineteen eighty one, on ABC. It ran against on ABC the second half of the Monsters Revenge and something called Great Disasters, which I guess was just about disasters that happened around the world. Yeah, I know. I I couldn't find any information about it. On CBS, uh, it ran against. Okay, so this is what I think is so neat. So CBS aired against Midnight Offerings, a rerun of The Wizard of Oz, which is The Good Witch versus Bad Witch, right? So, oh, yeah. so that was kind of clever. And I don't know if Midnight Offerings plugged it in on that probably, night. I was probably watching that because we used to watch The Wizard of Oz when they would show it annually yeah. throughout my childhood. Oh, man, I should have been watching Midnight Offerings <laughs> or Munster's Revenge. Yeah, I know. It's a good night for TV. And then after The Wizard of Oz ended, they showed Dallas, which was, you know, the big juggernaut of... Uh, Friday nights. And so the ratings were really bad. It got a 13.9 slash 23, which means it came in at number 186 out of 287 TV movies to and miniseries to air that season. So that's Ouch. very low on the list for an original premiere. Um, it came in at number 53 for the week. Monsters didn't do much better. It landed at number 51. And The Wizard of Oz came in at number 18. So you were watching it, Dan, and so was the rest of America. I um, apologize to everyone <laughs> listening. So one of the highest rated programs air of that week was the CBS airing of the Amityville Horror that came in at number five. Also TV, um, not TV movies, but other horror movies and horrific movies airing that week on network television were a run of Prom Night and um, a run of the TV movie Fallen Angel. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Fallen Angel, but that's basically about a pedophile, I think, who lures a young girl into like his porno ring. I don't know if you guys have seen that. It's really good. Um, So... Uh, there's lots of horror cred in Midnight Offerings, which Justin had already brought up. There were the two leads, right? So Mary McDonough started Mortuary, and Melissa Anderson, Happy Birthday to Me. But there's also like one or two lines from Dana Kimmel, who is we know Justin's favorite actress in the world, um, who had been seen in Friday the 13th and Sweet 16. I guess around this time, maybe after, right? Didn't those come out after Midnight Offerings, Justin? Uh, yes, yes, because I think, um, well, Friday 13th Part 2 was, uh, sorry, Part 3 was 82, and I think, um, Sweet 16 was filmed in 81. So, mm. it would, cause this was made in, was it a fall of 80? Is it sort of, I think? Oh, you know more than I do on that. Um, and, uh, and of course, Vanna White has like one line, and we would see her later in graduation day. Vanna White had a really interesting career. Um, somebody should talk to her about her little parts in these horror movies. Um, this was Patrick Cassidy's debut. 
Um, and as I said earlier, his brothers are David Cassidy and Sean Cassidy. He did mostly TV movies at the beginning of his career. He showed up in something called Angel Dusted. He did Choices of the Heart, which is interesting because that starred the other Little House actress, Melissa Gilbert. So he worked with a couple of Little House actresses. Um, he does a lot of theater still to this day, so he's still working. Again, this was written by Juanita Bartlett. Um, that might be a name that people recognize because Yay. she was heavily involved in the Rockford Files as a writer. Yes. And, um, and I think Rita Moreno won an Emmy for a guest spot she did on an episode of the Rockford Files. And in her award she speech, she said that nobody writes women the way Winita Bartlett does. And I, I've, she's I've fantastic, always, yeah. yeah, she's really good. So, so just a real brief, uh, look at Winita, Winita Bartlett. She was born in San Francisco. She moved to Hawaii at a very young age. And then she somehow talked her parents into moving from Hawaii to LA so she could pursue acting. She was actually 10 years old when she did that. She, um, at the same time, was beginning to write stories and she had it in her head at a super young age, obviously, that she wanted to work in the entertainment industry. So while working her way up the ladder, she ended up becoming secretary to Richard Crenna, which I thought was really interesting. And then she worked for Meta Rosenberg in the same position. So Rosenberg was at the oh, time, yes. James, yeah. yeah, James Garner's manager. And then she would become producer of the Rockford Files. The Rockford Files actually had a really heavy duty female crew, which I don't think gets kind of spotlighted enough, um, but Juanita was a big part of that. And so, of course, they would go on to work together and rock her files and, and go on to fame and fortune and all that stuff. Uh, Juanita really liked working with Stephen J. Cannell, who was an executive producer of Midnight Offering, so he helped her with this film. Um, and she had actually owned her own production company, too, called Jada or J-A-D-D-A Productions, which she would later call uh, Juanita Bartlett Productions. This was directed by Rod Holcomb, who... Um, at this time, he was primarily an episodic TV director. Uh, this was his second telefilm. The first one was uh, from 1973, Captain America. I think these are actually his two best-known TV movies. Uh, but in the 90s, he started to work heavily in the TV movie. Um, he's now a professor uh, in UCLA's theater, film, and television department. So he had a really interesting background. He was living in Europe in the early 1960s, and when he moved back to the States, he went to film school in San Francisco where he worked on um, experimental films. He ended up in Los Angeles in the mailroom at ABC and worked his way up to become an associate producer on Hario. But his roots were actually in European films, which I made a note of because I thought Midnight Offerings had a really interesting visual aesthetic. I thought some of the camera work was really, really neat and kind of unlike you, stuff you would see in TV movies at this time. Um, he directed both the pilots for China Beach and ER. And of course, Mary McDonough was Aaron Walton on The Waltons. Um, but while she was working on that series, she was also participating in a lot of local L.A. theater uh, as a way to enrich her acting skills. And so she was really, really excited about her part in Midnight Offerings because she felt it would be a departure from the Waltons and might help the audiences open up to her doing different types of roles. I would imagine Mortuary was a part of that as well. The Morning Call newspaper in Allentown, Pennsylvania, called the movie Pure Schlock, which I don't like. Um, John O'Connor of The New York Times said, um, as a part of a genre that was a uh, popularity boost with the success of the movie Carrie, this film has its fascinating moments, most of them provided by the special effects of John Coles and his brother Bill. So they were the special effects duo working on this. Objects seem to zoom around rooms with chilling ease, and Juanita Barlow's script is crammed with delicious lines. As usual, there is something running up in the middle of the terror and saying, I don't mean to frighten you, but it could save your life. As we leave David, he is observing, quote, you gotta think about tomorrow, end quote. And for myself, I'm thinking about what ABC could possibly have concocted for next Friday. And the reason why he was commenting on that is because the week before this aired was an airing of a TV movie called The Intruder Within, which is sort of an alien ripoff 
um, on an oil rigger. And so a lot of newspapers were speculating whether or not ABC was turning the Friday night movie into something that would just be specifically for horror movies. And I don't think that came to be, but that's kind of looks like where they were heading at the time. So that's my feedback. But I know Justin dug up some really interesting stuff about the film's um, working title. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've come up with? In a piece of uh, delicious synchronicity, really, was the, um, as as you do, I was reading the autobiography of Anna White, um, which... <laughs> Which uh, you can—I don't own a copy, but on there's the Internet Archive you can find um, that has a copy on there. So I, I, I saw she mentioned that the film was originally called *The Burning* when she signed up for it, uh, and obviously uh, in the piece of synchronicity I'm talking about is obviously the other film we're talking about, *The Sins of Dorian*. Yes, is Tony Malam directed the 1981 slasher *The Burning*? So, which was um, funny. The uh, what? Why the title was changed? To this I'm not sure because also don't go into the house um i think it was originally uh, had the title the burning mm. which was changed when they realized the burning was in production i think i may be slightly mixed up with that but um i did find a piece i sent across to amanda of um a tv listing where actually um called it both midnight offerings in the, the um the uh, listing above and in the, the mini review below they called it the burning so presumably it was something that um uh, a title change that was um, done quite late on uh, just a couple of just a, a few other bits I found, which I thought was quite funny. You mentioned um, obviously Melissa Sue Anderson. Um, she um, uh, both her and uh, Mary McDonough have kind of their own autobiographies um, that they wrote, and they mention these films as well as their their slasher movies. Um, uh, Mary McDonough was saying she was in complete awe of Melissa Sue Anderson. Uh, and um, but Melissa Anderson said apparently, and I think you can actually when you re you watch it. Although Melissa Anderson has the kind of top billing, I can guess she was she's not actually in the movie that much when you watch it. And it said that she'd signed on for this, and she um, they made it in the fall of 1980, uh, but she was only signed on to work for 10 days. So uh, and she said that she was um, thrilled um, to be working on because she was a fan of the Rockford, Rockford Files, and we mentioned uh, you mentioned Amanda that, that kind of the the links with that. Um, one little uh, she, she's thrilled to be playing a bad character. One little fun factoid I, I read was that she said that she had to go and shoot an episode of Little House on the Prairie um, uh, during the um, uh, like a break in filming. And uh, she scrubbed off her witchy poo makeup, but she still had long red nails. So she realised when she was shooting Little House on the Prairie, she had to keep her, her hands out of shot in case they saw her vision oh. uh, red nails. Which I thought was quite fun. The, um, the Mary um, McDonough uh, said she'd always wanted to be in a horror movie, um, and obviously I think quite often, you know, I can imagine with any actor or you know actor who'd been in the kind of slightly saccharine sweet um family dramas that they wanted to sort of uh, uh, sort of break away uh she said that she was really happy to be in a modern film and wearing then fashionable clothes and clothes that didn't smell of mothballs obviously referring to her kind of like the um uh you know the the oldie style uh, sort of uh, clothes she would have to wear on on uh, on the waltons um, she said she had a blast on set. Um, uh, she said that she knew, uh, a quote for newspapers, she said that uh, knew it would be a great part for her because playing a witch is as far away from Erin uh, and the Waters as I can get. Um, and lastly, well, a couple of other quick bits if we've got time, but there was a, a piece from her biography, autobiography, and she talks, and it's just a very short paragraph, and she talks about um, Melissa Sue Anderson. She says, her hair was short and dark, but her stunning blue eyes were the same. Melissa smoked, drank tab, and to my recollection, ate carrot sticks. She was thin, I was not. 
She seemed bold and confident. She smoked outright. I hid in my trailer, avoiding disapproval at all costs. She was about uh, my age, 19, when we filmed Offerings, but dated older men. She was dating Frank Sinatra Jr. at the time. I I'd barely oh. dated. She drove Mercedes, Mercedes. I drove a Honda Prelude. She was savvy and sophisticated, and I was still a geek. Um, so it's interesting how she viewed herself on on the film. Uh, funny enough, it actually kind of goes completely against what I when I listened to the cast um, uh, kind of a reunion from Happy Birthday to Me when they said that um, Melissa Anderson was a raw loner on the set of that film um, and didn't really mix with the other cast. And it sounds like it's kind of a complete flip here. And the last thing I found was to mention about the special effects. Um, the one article I found was in the Bangor Daily News. Um, and it said that in the bedroom scene that um, they had to have two firemen on on hand and they retardant on the curtains and the on the um, the, the bedding. So uh, Mary McDonough didn't go up in flames. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God she didn't. That would have been horrifying. Sorry? Yes, I think. I think maybe the change of the title was probably the right move because the burning would give it all away, wouldn't it? In a way, about yeah. um, how the film is going to end. It's kind of, it's it's an odd. It would seem. To, I mean, Midnight Offerings. I mean, you, we know it as that. Um, but under the burning, obviously, like you say, it kind of tips it hat its hat to the idea. And obviously, it's about witches. It, it, but it's um, yes, it does kind of tip its hat really to that. Um, but I do wonder if uh, they. I'm not sure the chronology of when the burning came out. I don't think it was later into '81. Um, but uh, but yeah, so interesting. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for bringing all that. That's, that Thank stuff you. in the biography is really cool. Um, and I I wish I thought to even. I knew Melissa Sue Anderson had a biography. I don't think I. Oh no, wait. I knew Mary McDonough had a biography. I don't think I knew Melissa Sue Anderson had one. That's one I'd like to read. Pardon me. I was going to say about Vanna White's um, autobiography. There was a funny piece, just very quickly while I remember it, and she was talking about um, burnt offerings, and then she talked about graduation day, and she said that um, when she was on gradu- graduation day, even though she has that amazing scene when she breaks down in the locker room, oh, yeah. said, her, her, she, the town she was from, they organised a special screening of the film, graduation day, in honour of Vanna White and invited her back and more or less gave her the key to the city or to the village or wherever she was from, the little town. And all the town turned up and watched her on graduation day. And Vanna White was <laughs> yawning. So. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, I always say that like when I watch like a low-budget horror movie and they've got like somebody in there doing something, not that I think she's super embarrassing in graduation day, but like somebody has to do something super embarrassing and they're like, dear mom, I'm going to be in a movie. It's called Hack O Lantern. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's like, and I'm I'm the dancer in the heavy metal band scene or whatever, you know. And then and then I went to Juilliard for six years and it's finally paying off, you know. And I kind of wonder like what the people outside of her life are like. Oh God. Okay. Cool. Congratulations. I think you know what I mean. But um, but I think Vanna, Vanna White is it's charming to see her in these movies because I never think of her as having an acting background. You know, because she's been a game show host for so long. And so when she shows up in these things, and she did that weird TV movie, Goddess of Love, too, with uh, Little Richard and David Naughton. So it's not like she's never acted, but it's just kind of funny to see her in this. And great to see Dana Kimmel, too, because Dana Kimmel would go on to have much bigger roles just a year later. You know what I mean? I guess um, I'd have to look. Do you remember when she was on Facts of Life and she was Blair's really rich friend and she invited Blair to come visit her and Blair had kind of learned to live like the lower classes? And so she was like, um, like they were going to have a party, but the catering company had to like cancel. So Blair's like, oh, I can help us make something for like 20. We'll have baked beans. And Danny Kimball's character's like, Blair, that's like totally gross. You know what I mean? 
And then they realize that they've grown apart because Blair's become a human. Well, I do That's the saddest to... story I've ever heard. <laughs> I do want to be a fan of Kimmel's, the, the one person gives a thumbs down on the hysteria continue, because I used to be very rude about her. Uh, <laughs> <her actions. laughs> yeah, That's right, yeah, yes. But I have I all like her. Yeah. yeah, she's she's pretty good. Um, so anyway, so that's uh, Midnight Offerings. So why don't we just go ahead and dive right into The Sins of Dorian Gray. Dan? Uh, this, of course, is based on um, uh, Oscar Wilde's novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. And this one does a little switcheroo, and uh, Dorian's now a woman. And uh, this one, it, 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 be, it begins a little odd where you see a woman uh, who someone calls Dorian in a big, like, fur coat, looking very glorious, um, leaving some glorious place and walking down a very dark alley. Halfway down the dark alley, she's accosted by a woman who's probably... 20 years or so older than she is and say, you, you killed my husband and you, you've made life miserable for me and my child. And you'll then Dorian there says, can it be me? Look at, look at how old I am. It, it couldn't be me because the woman says it was 20 years ago. Uh, it couldn't have been me. Look at, look at, uh, look at how I would have been a child. And the, the older woman's like, oh yes. Okay. Well, you can go. And Dorian leaves and rounds a corner and starts crying. And then it cuts to, um, uh, Tony Perkins playing a character named Henry Lord, uh, in some great old, Old age makeup, sitting in a limo. He gets. I think they're in New York City, right? Are they in New York City? I, I, I so. keep. Um, yes. Um, uh, he goes up to this great apartment, and while he's in the apartment, uh, Dorian uh, shows up, the woman we saw in the alleyway, and she's being very friendly to him. And he sort of says via um, voiceover that you know I hadn't seen Dorian in ten years, but she hadn't aged a day. Uh oh. And they kind of have a bit, bit of an awkward chat. And then he begins to, Mr. Lord begins to um, tell Dorian's story. And we flash back from that point, we flash back 30 years, I believe. Um, there's some time jumping here and there with the beginning and such. Um, but we see that Dorian is, uh, she's a young woman, she's about early 20s. She's an aspiring actress. She's done a screen test for uh, Sophia Lord. Um, Henry's um, uh, wife and Sophia is a, as, as far as I can tell she's a director and um, and they watch a screen test uh, Dorian's done where someone is painting her you like your painting better than your friends Paul I might as well be one of your bronze statues look up and turn your head towards me you're not being very cooperative today and stop frowning Paul, what would you do if I told you I want to make love with you? Would you stop painting and come to me? Or would you try and capture the expression? Hmm? She looks coyly at the camera, and she looks lovely. Uh, Sophia and Dorian are, are talking about this, and Sophia wants Dorian to be in her movie, and Dorian says... Um, Basically, wouldn't it be great, you know, if I could look the way I do, you know, because, you know, 20, 30 years from now, I'm going to be old. That picture will still be young and beautiful. Boy, wouldn't it be great if I could stay that young? Uh-oh. And so uh, she meets Henry, who happens, and Anthony Perkins, who shows up at that time. And he gets, well, Henry is in charge of, now, now I'm not sure if he's, I'm, I wasn't sure exactly what it was he did. Is he in charge of that? He's, um, he's like a mogul, and so he's got a bunch of different businesses, okay. but one of them involves, like, perfume and stuff, and okay. and um, and he's just rich. 
He's ridiculously rich. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, so, so he's one of those rich guys who gets Dorian a job as a model for like a perfume and a lipstick and an everything and this, that. And um, while there, she meets a guy named Stuart, who is um, sometimes works for this photographer. Um, he also does some extra work. He also plays piano at a local bar for 20 bucks a night. And Stuart and Dorian begin having a relationship. Henry is kind of monitoring Dorian's life because she's his new, uh, the new face for, the, um, for this perfume and such. And um, isn't so thrilled that she's with um, Stuart. And somewhere in there, Dorian asks Sophia for the screen test. And she's given a cop. She's given the copy of the screen test, and Henry, because Dorian's his new, not his new gal yet, as in ga gal, as in I'm noodling around with you, gal. Gal is in new main model. Um, he gives her an apartment, the apartment we saw earlier in the movie, and the apartment includes a huge rear screen projection TV, which oddly enough stays the exact yeah. same over the course of like the 30 years. Yeah. You think the technology would have would have um, uh, changed a bit, but um, and and so uh, yeah, she's got this this beautiful place and this huge TV, and the TV's behind like you know like um like the wall pulls aside and the, the screen is behind, and it's re it's really great. She's so she's being the model, and that's great. She's she's together with Stuart. And she's trying to convince uh, Henry to find some way to give Stuart a break with his music. Henry's not convinced, but Stuart is given a chance to play his songs on American Bandstand, for heaven's That's sake. Right. But but Stuart ends up, I, I, as as far as I can tell, he ends up. I think is he is he is he does he get high or is he just drunk? I'm not 100 percent sure, but he screws it up. Can you give him something? I got seven, maybe eight minutes. Wait, Rick, I've got to talk to you. No kidding. Sorry. Look, uh, he's definitely not going on. He's Great. out of the show. Great. What? Uh, Dale is coming back for a session. Okay, just as long as I know. Um, what are you talking about? Did you announce him? Well, what's the difference? Nobody's going to remember his name anyway. Whatever it is. Stuart Vane. Oh, yeah, right. Hey, babe. You're going to have to talk to them. They, they just knocked me right out of the show. I guess I just took too many. Dorian, I... I just can't do this for you. Do you want to talk to him alone? No. He screws up his big break. Um, and uh, Dorian is, is really pissed off at him. And at that point, she begins to kind of begins a, sort of an affair with Henry. And Stuart is sort of heartbroken. And the thing with Stuart is that Stuart loves Dorian, but Stuart's married. And, and his wife is pregnant. Maybe no one here is really all that great. And Stuart ends up kind of committing suicide, yelling Dorian's name as he does it. Uh, from that point on, somewhere in here, Dorian, right after that, I think this is the first time, I, I can't remember exactly, but Dorian puts on the screen test to have a look at it after all of this happens. And she sees that her image on the film is now sort of getting older, is kind of degrading. She continues her career, and I, I won't go too far into it because it's Dorian Gray. I mean, you, 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 I think everyone sort of knows where it's going to go. But she becomes sort of more, I guess, decadent, and she begins to um, hunt down the finer things in life and crazier stuff and go nuttier and nuttier. And obviously, as she does it, and she, she, she drinks more and smokes more and, and you know, hurts herself, not, not by accident, like she cuts herself, I think, with like a corkscrew or something on her hand, um, all these... 
um, all everything that should be happening to her body and and scars and everything are obviously happening to the image on the film. I don't, I don't know exactly how far I should go because um, it, it when it gets near the end, it's kind of it's obviously completely different uh, yeah. uh, event wise from the novel, but it kind of does what the novel does. And then I'll I guess I kind of leave it at the the opening moment where she's the woman in the alley is Stuart's wife twenty years later, and that sort of moment puts her on a track of trying to be good. And so I'll kind of leave it there because the book does that too. It has a moment where uh, uh, where Oscar, where sorry Oscar, uh, where Dorian um, uh, is is trying to turn sort of himself around. And and so you you get you. It's basically it's Dorian Gray except it's a woman who's a model. And yes, as it goes along, she begins to treat people badly, but she can because she stays forever young. And so how bad will she get? Will turning good? do anything to help and um how great is anthony perkins old old man makeup in the movie <laughs> it's good so let's talk about all these things okay. <laughs> so so i guess i want to start off and i put this on twitter today just randomly not even realizing how important i think the line is just because i related to it when they said it so there's a point towards the beginning of the film where anthony perkins who's like both a father-like character to dorian and also a lover to her it's kind of a complicated relationship that i really enjoy um watching in the film but he says something to her and i'm paraphrasing he says there are two tragedies in this world one is you, you don't get what you want and the other is that you get everything you want and i think that's kind of the whole crux of this movie isn't it right and so um i'm not real sure and maybe you guys could clarify for me where it the transaction takes place where the film is aging and she's not like if the, if there's a moment in the film that we actually see that that's what's going to happen do you understand what i'm asking and um i'm unclear about that but i don't even think it matters because the film is doing so many interesting things and i haven't read dorian gray picture dorian gray in like 30 years so when you talk about how close it resembles the novel you're gonna have to walk me through it because i remember nothing now about it and so i hope you can do that but let's just get some original not original. Let's get some initial thoughts. Let's get some original thoughts for once, guys, okay? Because this is really embarrassing. Let's get some initial thoughts <laughs> on what we are, because this is a first time watch for all of us. I'll just say I loved it. I was really surprised by it. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about Rankin and Bass's live action stuff as we go on, because this was a Rankin and Bass production, who people will know for Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and, and all those Christmas specials. And this is the only one I can think of that I've seen that has no kind of animation in it at all. Um, or costumes or monsters or anything like that. The monster is sort of inside of her, which is also really poignant, um, or it's not animated. Um, but Justin, what did you think of The Sins of Dorian Gray? I I enjoyed it. I mean, I think it was, I'd say it's a kind of trashier uh, side of TV movies compared to Midnight Offerings, and that's not a bad thing at all. Um, I think I think the only thing I would say is potentially was kind of possibly hamstrung by the the very fact that you can't really go that far we're talking about with tv movies how far you can go with it mm. and with the um you know i i enjoyed the, the gender switch um i thought that was that was well done and actually i really liked the um the actress who uh yes. portrayed during greatness i think she was she was great um i mean i think it's kind of the reason i'm saying that is you get to the end where she's throwing a party when she's at the in the depths of her depravity and all they're doing is watching TV, drinking red wine, and they've got a couple of drag queens around. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's not really 
you know what I mean? It's not it doesn't feel like they've she's really reached bottom by that point. That just sounds like her usual Saturday night around my house. So <laughs> it's do you know what I mean? It doesn't so that in itself, I mean, as far as films, um my favourite Dorian Gray is uh Massimo Dalamano's nineteen seventy film Yes Helmet yeah. Burns yes. uh, and uh, um uh is it Henry Lom? No, um Herbert Lom and uh, Mark mm-hmm. Lee and that's that, that goes is kind of kinkier it's kind of a kinkier version of Dorian Gray uh, and it, with all the things in 1970 that you, you would imagine like the fashions and everything like that I, I think um, I think the I, again I enjoyed it I think the other thing that it kind of took me out of it a bit was that the the period design was kind of all over the place really uh, they went to sort of um, areas where they had took time to photograph uh, in mod fashions and 50s kind of Audrey Hepburn fashions but actually the live action stuff didn't really convince um, for me it was kind of uh, is it Timothy Bottoms wasn't it it was playing that played the it was um, Joseph Joseph, oh, Joseph Bottoms, sorry, his sorry, brother Joseph, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the lounge singer but the, the lounge singer in 1950 something he didn't convince me and I, so it kind of that felt a bit sort of I know it's to be honest it's a if you watch a uh, you know a Hollywood um, biblical epic which I don't but from the 1950s 1960s all the women have um, sort of Elizabeth Taylor makeup on so it's not you know that's not a, a specific criticism of this film but it felt a bit kind of like all over the place I didn't really feel that there was much of a transition time wise mm. apart from um, you know uh, you know a, a few things uh, uh, throughout it but I, I I did enjoy it, um, but one thing I was going to mention, just a, a film it really reminded me of, and this is, you know, sometimes you get these movies and you think, I remember seeing this, and I don't remember the title of it. I see it all the time on Facebook, people saying, I saw this movie with my father back in whatever, blah, 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 and this is something. And the film that reminded me of, and I don't know if it was a TV movie, it may well have been, but it was this kind of similar kind of story about this actress who um, who never aged, and she was still in films, and she looked like this, um, the, you know, this this young woman in her twenties. And it, the twist, it turns out, um, was that in fact actually it was her daughter, um, and they covered mm. up her hands with gloves to, um, to not to hide the fact that she had, they, they couldn't hide the aging of her hands. Um, but uh, it was the fact that her hands were actually very young because she really was a daughter. Does that ring any bells? No, but that sounds really good, Dan. Yeah, that kind of does. Actually, the gloves thing does, but um, I, I'm not sure. No, but uh, wow. it's, that was just a, um, a, a just as an aside. But it's yeah, I had fun with it. Um, I, I thought the, uh, the, the it was interesting that kind of flip with the film and the age the the, the film. Yeah. Um, Olga Carlotos was was great, and obviously we know her. Well, I know her best from uh, Lucha Fulci Zombie Flesh Eaters or. Yes. Yes. So this she 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 dies, which is a spoiler alert. But she doesn't get her eye gouged out by a zombie. Which um, mm-hmm. so uh, uh, and Anthony Perkins was was fun in it, and I I did like his kind of the character of his character because he wasn't he, he wasn't this kind of arch villain twisting his you know he was this kind of um, uh, playboy to start off with where he um, uh, you know he, he was being around the block is cynical and it was basically he says to Dorian I would have kept that the last model but she aged so I had to get rid of her so there's a kind of cynicism there to him but he becomes the kind of moral heart of the story which is kind of interesting switch up with it but uh, yeah I had fun with it it's uh, it's it's not my favorite version of Dorian Gray but I think it was a uh, it was an interesting switcheroo and uh and again, I love uh, movies from the early 1980s, so it kind of, it, you know, I had, you know, I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, it had a, I thought it had a really beautiful look to it. Like Dan was talking about, like the apartment. It's a very glamorous film, 
and um and it just makes something even semi-glamorous and i'm a fan for life because i just love this like fantasy life that they build for her at the beginning when she becomes the mystique model or whatever she is for anthony perkins and and she gets this amazing apartment and he's just like yeah it's yours and then she just stays there for like 30 years and you're right dan she, they don't update anything they're just like mm-hmm. it looks fine the way it is and um and let's not worry about modern technology at all. Just roll with it, Dorian. And she's like, yeah, okay, it's a free apartment, you know. But um, and Belinda Bauer, who plays Dorian, is is so beautiful in it. Yeah, it's, it's um, that part of it I just really latched onto. Uh, Nate, what did you think of the movie? I think the movie looks really good, and I think the cast is great. But, um, but I'm so sorry, I was so bored. It just seemed to meander so long, and I was like, man, I was waiting for it to get to something, anything. Um, I just, maybe I shouldn't have watched it right after Midnight Offerings, because I love Midnight Offerings so much. But, yeah, unfortunately, I just, I couldn't get into it. I thought it was so slow-paced, and I was looking for something, I guess, maybe a little more faster-paced. I definitely don't regret watching it, but... Overall, I just kept thinking to myself, I've kind of seen this done already in other Dorian Gray movies and more ways I preferred. I did like the idea of Dorian Gray being a woman. I think that was a fantastic idea. But overall, the movie itself, I was just a little, a little blah. I'm sorry. You know, Nate, I'm, I'm sad that this is our last episode together. <laughs> I knew I was going to be in trouble for this. It's it just stopped being fun. Yeah, no, know. you ruined everything. No, that's fine. Obviously, um, yeah, I guess I could see that. Maybe I just have uh, more patience for it. But I have not seen that Helmet Burger, Dorian Gray, and I made a note of it in the background because it was called The Sins of Dorian Gray in some places, and some places it was just called Dorian Gray. So I made a note of that. So, and I'm not that familiar with the story, except I did read it in high school, and I wrote a paper in Oscar Wilde, and I remember stuff about it. But I haven't seen a lot of the adaptations. But I really like, like I said, I think I got caught up in a lot of the glamour of it, and the actors are really good. But I could see where you're coming from, and and I'm not going to fire you, but I'm going to write you up. Okay, I will take okay. my, I'll take my write up. I'll sign that. Okay, it's going in your file. You can't get rid okay. of it. Okay, Dan, what did you think of it? And you know what the answer is. Uh, I loved it. <laughs> no, what did you think of it? Oh, um, I, well, well. First off, as Justin uh, said, there's something about the the time element of it that confuses me because if it's if the actual like framing stuff, and I don't mean the framing of the alley, I mean the other framing of old Anthony Perkins. If that's set in 1983 then that means she started in 1953. And I'm fairly certain they didn't have TVs that big in 1953. In fact, I'm I'm fairly certain they were all very, very tiny. Um, But if if it begins in 1983 and it ends in 2013, that doesn't make much sense either. So I'm wondering if it, it could be something where we've seen the Dorian Gray story told before. So, um... So maybe maybe there was some sort of like ah who cares when they were doing it like you know no one no one watching it is going to do what we're doing and sit there and go wait a minute she would be updating that rear screen projection TV for something else about now you know or something like you know because it seems to me like there are moments like with the magazine covers and some of the makeup and stuff where they try to make you feel like there's a passage of time but really it's just they're telling you time has passed 
10 years has passed. And that's 10 years, when he says that at the beginning, that's 10 years has passed from the previous scene in the alley. And, and it's, it's just like, it's, if, if you, yeah, trying to follow the time was fun to do. The second time I watched it, I tried to map out the time and everything and kind of see it. I got a little lost. As, as far as the movie goes, you know, I've, I've seen yeah, other Dorian Gray versions. Uh, I haven't read the book. I read the book maybe last about 15 or so years ago because I was Dorian Gray one year for Halloween. And I, um, I, uh, I reread the book. And, um, and I will say, don't go as Dorian Gray for Halloween. No matter how much you point out to people that you're Dorian Gray, for every person who goes, oh, that's clever, you're going to get someone who goes, ah, you're who? Yeah. What? Yeah. Because I, what I did was I, um, I, I got a nice haircut. I was clean shaven. I put on my best suit and tie. And I had, and it was like, um, it, it was like uh, I was presenting as myself like a, um, like someone like a business a convention or a conference and i had a little um tag that said hello my name is uh, dorian gray and then around my neck i had a picture of a really old man <laughs> and then people would come up to me and they say who are you and i and i you know point and I, oh you're dorian gray and i say this is my picture and for everyone who looked and went ha you i would get at least three people who were like is this a costume? What is this? And so, so um, don't do Dorian Gray for unless unless you know your crowd a little better than I did, um, a little worse. Yeah, a little, definitely better. Um, so, um, so I've seen versions of this before, and so when I heard that we were going to talk a Dorian Gray version, I thought, do I want to see another one? And after <laughs> watching this, I, I I'm glad I watched it. Although the weird thing is, unlike Midnight Offerings, where I was iffy on the first half, but then the second half grabbed me, this one I was the other way around. The first half, before she really dives into whatever the decadence is that they're showing us, I really kind of preferred that, where, like, she's just kind of trying to live her life and be successful, but, like, some of the things she's doing is causing the film to age, and get decrepit, you know, just just trying to, and then and then eventually she's like, well, hell, if it's going to happen, why don't why not go full out and go crazy? And then it really compacts all the um the the crazy decadent stuff she does into a really it's almost a montage, but it's it's really this 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 chunk sort of in the middle, and then she becomes good, and then it ends. And I I will say that um I didn't have I I actually didn't think this one. Um, I thought this one moved f not not quickly. It didn't move quickly, but I was surprised that when it gets to the moment where she's suddenly like she's on the the the, the um, she's in the in the shoot photo shoot and she's being really bitchy to everyone. And I checked the time and it was like maybe fifty minutes in. I was like, oh wow, this is moving quicker than I thought it would. So I, th I think it looks nice. I think I like their I like some of their changes. I love the fact that every time she looks at the film. It starts off with her face away from the camera, so we have to we have that like ten seconds of suspense, like how old is she going to be this time when she turns? Um, and so overall, I, I think I think I would recommend the film. It's it's not the best Dorian Gray um, version, but there's something about it that just feels a little weird. It doesn't really feel like an American movie mm. to me. I don't know why it feels well like. It's it's weird every way from having uh, Olga in it to um, like Tony Malam there who I know is British to uh, well sort of the theme song to it uh, these things they it, it made it feel like it wasn't quite a regular TV movie to me so it was a little off kilter the entire time um, 
so I would I would recommend it. I I didn't love it, but I would I I would recommend a viewing, especially if you're a fan of uh, Dorian Gray variations. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, you know. It probably has a weird feel because it was meant to be released theatrically overseas and just for TV here. And so I think that they were considering both audiences at the time, like how they would market it overseas and also how they would market it to TV. And I don't know if you're seeing Rankin and Bass's other kind of overseas theatrical films, The Last Dinosaur or The Ivory Ape, but they both also have that kind of weird, is this a TV movie or is this stuff like a Mm -hmm. European thing? They have these weird sort of um, fever dreamy kind of quality where they're trying to mix the two markets together. And by the way, my rat is Mm -hmm. going crazy, so I apologize for all the noise in the background. (laughs) I tried to calm him down, but I couldn't do it. Um, And so, so yeah, it does have kind of a a weird feel, which I like personally, um, because I like... I like it feeling different, and I like that it has kind of a cinematic flair to it that you don't always see in TV movies. And every time I say that, I feel really bad because I say that about a lot of movies, so clearly a lot of them do have a cinematic flair. But also that doesn't mean to diminish the movies that are more static. But this one definitely feels like it had more money, and it actually had a longer shooting frame. Um, Whereas a lot of TV movies, uh, like Justin noted that um, Melissa Anderson was only hired to do 10 days on midnight offerings, but most TV movie shoots were like two weeks, right? So, like, it's not unusual to have these movies be made, like, in October and then air in January. Um, but uh, if I'm doing this off my memory, but we'll see it in the background, Sins of Dorian Gray started shooting, like, two years before it aired. So they, they had in mind a bigger film, right? So... Um, and I think that's why it has it has some of the aspects that it has. And it also, they had a different audience in mind, perhaps. But I think the more that I think about the movie, while I was watching it, I was thinking about in terms of ageism and things like that. And there's probably something to be said about that in this, about how much worth we put into beauty over substance. And even she says that to the hairdresser lady, um, that... Uh, everybody gets older and she's kind of bitter about it in a way. Like there's something about that. She feels like she's missing something. I think she intimates that even though everybody is thinking probably on the outside, Oh my God, could you imagine being 45 and looking like that? It would be so amazing. You know what I mean? And she's thinking like, I don't like the person that I am or the person that I've become. And so that quote that I pulled that Anthony Perkins says, I think is where the film really hinges because I think within Dorian Gray um, and she says it too herself when um, she's deciding whether or not to take the job for Anthony Perkins. So she can either be in the movie, uh, which is being made by Anthony Perkins' wife. By the way, having a female filmmaker in the 50s would be, like, there's Ida Lupino, but that wasn't a common thing. Yeah. And so, like, she could either be in this movie, or she's just been told that she gave one of the best screen tests that this woman has ever seen, this really, really highly sought-after, respected director, or she become a model, for this really reputable company, right? But, like, it would not be the same as acting. It would be just based off the fact that she was a really beautiful woman. And she thinks about it, and she says to Anthony Perkins, there'll always be time to act later. Or maybe she says it to the wife. And she never gets back to that, ever. Like, 30 years pass, and she's still just a spokesperson for this model, you know, for this um, fragrance company or makeup company. And, and she never really gets what she wants, which is to have this, like, career as a very respected talented actress mm. and so her whole life is like even though she has all this stuff at her fingertips which is beauty and men who love her and riches and she's missing that thing that she was so passionate about at the beginning of the film and so I think the subtext of the sins of Dorian Gray 
is really amazing. And I don't know if it's intended or not, although I think to some degree it must be. But, like, it stood out to me as an aging woman, right, a woman who's older um, and realizes how much older she is every time she gets on freaking Twitter or goes to the gym, right? And so, like, there's that idea of, like, oh, the idealized beauty, we put so much weight into it. And at the same time, we disrespect all the things that we should uphold about getting older. And she's recognizing that as she goes through the years. And it kind of reminded me of, and I'd have to see the movie again. But do you guys remember that, also based off a book, that German movie, The Tin Drum, about the little boy who never wants to grow up. So he throws himself down a flight of stairs and kind of stunts his growth. And he stays five years old for the rest of his life. And, you know, at one point he, like, tries to seduce his babysitter because he's a five-year-old. But he's also mature like an adult. And so, like, he's got these longings and these desires that he's never going to be able to fulfill because at some point he decided to always stay in the body of a five-year-old. And it's comparable to me, the two Mm -hmm. stories, because she's realizing she made a bargain somewhere in this movie, and and the bargain ended up a losing game for her. She wasn't going to win either way in some ways. And so... So I think it's really interesting. And also the structure is really interesting too because Joseph Bottoms is only really in the beginning part of the film and then his character gets killed mm-hmm. and then it becomes like a second film. And the loss of Stuart isn't really carried through the film to the way I would like it, but I think it, it's like he's the ghost that drives her to this bitter point in her life. And I like that too because it's also dealing with these ideas of grief. And, and so she's losing a lot even though she's been able to maintain this physical quality about her that drives people to distraction you know but it's it's saying that's not everything and so i think in a way this film is sort of kind of an important film um regardless of the flaws and that's how i sort of approached it um and so for me of the ranking of <coughs> movies that are like this and i mean the ivory Ape and the last dinosaur both films that are really kind of interesting and fascinating this is the most accomplished of those three and they also did the bermuda depths so that's probably the best of these types of films that they did. But this one to me ranks very close um, to the second best of these achievements of um, sort of these more adult orientated and or um, live action kind of based films. So, um, last, uh, have you guys seen The Last Dinosaur? No. I saw I saw it a lo- long time ago. Uh, I want to say, I forget, I don't even remember where, but I do remember seeing it. I think I liked it. It's great. But I do remember it. It's yeah, very yeah. much like a watching an exploitation movie. Um, it's really weird. And um, and Ivory Ape is even weirder than that. And they both have messages in them. But I think maybe this movie ekes out the message better than the other Rankin and Bass efforts that are like this. So those are just my thoughts on it. Um, so I think I'm going to be the lone big cheerleader of the film here, and which I don't mind doing. Um but uh, but we should probably talk about aspects of the film. So one thing we didn't mention, and he has a really small part, and it's interesting because he would have come off visiting hours where he, well, I guess he has kind of a small part in that, mm. but he plays a bigger part in it, is um, Michael Ironside. And what I love so much about Michael Ironside is that they start him off with like a big head of black hair, which you know is it, he doesn't have, and it's so beautiful. And then as the film progresses and he gets older, he becomes the Michael Ironside we've come to know in the early 80s, right? And um, he's kind of a tortured character, too. It's so interesting the way she destroys the people around her. And um, the only person she can't seem to destroy is the makeup artist, and I'm not sure what that says. Yes. What do you think? What do I think? I think I look like a freak. How can you say that? It's sensational. It's one of the best things we've done. I don't like it. Take it off. Dorian. Tracy, 
I don't like it. Take it off. No, I'm not going to do that, Dorian. Don't push me too far, Tracy. We're only experimenting, Dorian. Henry Lord's the only person who'll even see these shots. Now, he asked us to try something different. I am only going to tell you one more time, Tracy. You are being totally unreasonable. Campbell? Campbell! What's the problem? Get someone else to do my makeup. What? You heard me. Tracy's the best there is. Don't argue with me, Campbell. Just do it. But, like, so when she's going through all of these machinations and whatever, and she's becoming more and more bitter, she realizes that she's got to... So, so at one point in the film, it probably helps to, to go back a little, she, she shows Olga the film, where she's aging, and, and Olga wants to take the film back and do something with it. And so Dorian, in her terror, knowing that if something happens to the film, something will happen to her, kills Olga. And, and she's laying there in her apartment, and it's kind of an accident. She's, well, you know, she's holding the letter opener, like before she shows it in the movie. You know, that's going to come into play, right? And so, yeah, so yeah. she accidentally kills Olga, and then she goes over to Michael Ironside, who's the photographer who's been working for Anthony Perkins' character for like three decades. And she's like, you know, I just want you to go over to my apartment and pretend like you're doing a shoot and bring a really big trunk and put her body in it and get rid of it. <laughs> and I, you're going to do it because I asked you. And he's like, okay. And he does it. You know, which surprised me. And then and then he doesn't want to have anything to do with anything ever again. Like, he just wants some money from her, and then that leads to his demise. And um, I totally forgot why I brought that up. Do you guys remember? Like, I started you were with the point, but I had to backtrack. You were talking about Michael Ironside. You mentioned visiting well, hours, his hair. You no, know, he destroys, um, the, she destroys everybody, right? Uh, there's there's, oh, there's some, too, that they don't. Oh, I'm sorry. Just no, I was going to say you said about part from the makeup artist is they she doesn't. Yeah, score. and and I wonder why she is the only one that can withstand the uh, Dorian's powers. Maybe it's because she's a straight woman, or and she's a makeup artist, and so she she's under she's used to the veneer. Perhaps I don't know if there's symbolism there. So that's what I was trying to get to. But I felt like I had to say that Dorian ends up kind of accidentally destroying all of these people's lives. Um, along the way, and I felt like I had to give context to that by talking about Olga's death. But anyway, Dan, did you just say something? Oh, I was just going to say that the, the, don't they? I think they say there that like Alan has been. I, I could be making this up. Like Alan has almost been specifically just shooting Dorian yeah. for like the past few decades. So there's there's something about like he he's possibly way past his prime as a photographer, but for some reason she keeps him there. Um, maybe because she knew she was going to kill Sophia one day, and she just wanted she she knew he'd take care of it. But there was something about like the like the sort of um, you know why why would she? I, I guess maybe she's just become so complacent after a time. If she knows she's not going to age, and she knows she's not going to lose the job, why not keep this guy that she's comfortable with there, even if he's past his prime? Who 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 cares? Well, she, she, oh, go ahead, Justin. Oh, no, sorry, I was going to say, I, I, the thing I took away from it was that she wanted to keep people around her who knew her because she yeah. wanted other people mm -hmm. to see to see her not aging and uh, ask, asking mm -hmm. questions. So she thought if she kept the people that she knew that it was a symbiotic relationship, that he kept him at work, mm -hmm. even though he was, he, she alluded to him being a drunk, didn't she? Cause she said, oh, yeah. you can't 
hold yeah. the camera still yeah. anymore. I don't know. And so that was the that's the impression I kind of got that she was trying to protect her her kind of secret, really. I saw it more as that they were comforting to her because they were people that she came up with. And then she was going on to lead this really kind of crazy life where she was so like so like the debaucherous party that she has isn't that debaucherous, but you'll also notice it's a lot of people markedly younger than her. Right. And so like she's now she has to mix in crowds that are people that she probably has not much to relate to. And so I always saw the makeup artist and the photographer, even though she ends up treating them very poorly as the film progresses, as these people who, even though she's not aging physically inside she's aging and that and that she felt comfort with them in that way that's how i saw it um but i do think yeah there's also this idea that she has to keep herself she doesn't do a lot of public appearances like you don't see a lot of that stuff which which spokeswomen would have to generally do she's very much a cocooned in that house yeah uh, and the scene where um this the scene where uh is it is the makeup artist what's her name is it tracy or who's it might be tracy i can't remember where um where uh Dorian is at her wit's end and calls up calls up Tracy in the middle of the night long after Dorian has fired Tracy or Tracy is kind of they kind of mutually fired one another. Hello. Hello, Tracy. Yeah, who's this? It's Dorian. Uh, Tracy, can you talk? I uh, I need help. You're asking me to help you. Trace, I'm frightened. What's the matter? You find a couple of gray hairs? Please, Trace. You're the only person I can call. We were friends once, right? I'm not so sure we were. trouble you're in you'll just have to straighten it out for yourself because as far as I'm concerned you could be burning in hell made me feel very bad for Dorian she's an older woman I don't care how young she looks and she just needed an old friend to talk to well, she was Tracy yeah she was pretty desperate this is actually probably a pretty good point yeah. to get to where the movie just totally switches gears and like mm-hmm. so so she is like really desperate and I can't somebody says something to her about like that it's because she's like a bad person and she gets this idea that she can reverse what's happening in the film and maybe yes. reverse her own situation if she goes to some third world developing country and does good work for them, right? Like, like just helps children. Yes, like, yes. she just gets this idea, like... Tries to be virtuous, yeah. yeah so yeah. she goes to some crazy place where she, with, like, a convent that's also an orphanage. And then there's, like, a 10-minute sequence where she's just like helping sick kids and it's so weird. And then, and then (laughs) she comes back. Right. And so I guess the Mm -hmm. film takes place in 20 years and then maybe the last 10 years are supposed to be her being good. Yeah. Yeah. I think that might be the time frame. And, um, and I think Andy Perkins looks much older than 63 or in his sixties when he shows up. Cause it seems to me when he and her first meet, he's in his thirties or maybe early forties, but he seems like his old man makeup seems older to me after all the time and I think he was perfectly cast too because Anthony Perkins very handsome man but he's also got this like very thin frame and and for some reason I think that he with the makeup it looked right 
on the frame. Yeah, Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like his build looked yeah, right for yeah. the age as well. Um, did did you did you think that um, when they sh- when they showed him later on they were going to like substitute John Carradine or something? Oh, that would have been awesome. Yes, it's 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 me, Henry Lard. You remember me? <laughs> that would have been really really good. But you know, I like old dudes, and so he was just at the right age for me at the end of the film. So I was super into it. Um, nice. <laughs> but anyway, so like yeah, so she spends like ten years or whatever at this orphanage, and then she comes back, and then Henry shows up and. And then she's this like the final reveal again of the film. She keeps trying to show people this film, but she doesn't want them to do anything with it at the same time. Right. And so I mm-hmm. guess I think he rejects seeing the film, but she thinks um, this will be the time she puts it on and she will be back to what the original screen test looked like. And I love the makeup of her. She slowly gets older in the film because it starts mm-hmm. off kind of normal and then it gets like she's 200. I'm like, she'd be like 68. Yes. But yeah. they never at like 200 years old, you know what I mean? And like one of the eyes is like gone or something. Like it's crazy how old she gets. <clears throat> but it's a really nice effect. And um, mm-hmm. and I really like it. But so anyway, she went eventually watches the film again. And she realizes that she hasn't uh, been able to reverse the process. And, you know, I have to say the supernatural stuff is really vague to me in this movie. Like, I can't explain why it happens, you know. And mm-hmm. um, and so she kind of, I think she stabs the screen. Is that right? Yes. And then that stabs herself on the screen. Yeah, yeah. and then that's the end. And um, and then they come back to the place they hear screaming or something uh, as Anthony Perkins is leaving the building with the elevator guy. And they come back, mm-hmm. and then she's like the old lady laying on the floor dead. And then that's another after the credits moment because what? Yeah. What? I, yeah. I can't explain that but what did you guys think of the ending especially let's start with when she goes to the orphanage like what did you guys think of the turnabout um justin did you have any thoughts on that yeah i just i did make me well, not chuckle a bit but it's kind of this idea that she goes um goes off and is virtuous 10 years and then comes back and you have to question whether or not she was doing it for mm. juristic reasons or because she actually wanted to to um save herself purely for selfish reasons it's kind of difficult to know um i i I mean it is very much a kind of i think again i haven't read dorian gray for many years but obviously the versions i've seen it kind of very much the tea i mean one one thing i'll quickly clear up i think is the the mystery of the this this amazing sort of jetson style tv that she has in 1953 i think actually because she carries the the film doesn't she in a little canister the Mm -hmm. um so i think she must have some kind of movie camera set up behind the screen so uh and so she puts that in every time and then locks it away somewhere to keep it keep it safe um it kind of it i don't know it reminded me of um i don't know why something like mommy dearest about sending christina to um to um, a nunnery for 10 years or whatever she did and crawford did so it felt a bit like that um i did i did get a chuckle when they said something like they only were able to recognize her by a ring um, which I thought was quite, um, if I'm remembering correctly, because they couldn't. She looked so decrepit that she they, was, wasn't her ring or something on her finger. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So, yes. um, but uh, yeah, it's. I mean, very fitting for for what it what it was. I mean, the other thing to sort of mention very briefly was because the the, um, uh, the the irony of the you know with modern. I mean, it was back then, but it's still you know even more so now perhaps this idea of uh, this the desperation that some men and women go to to keep themselves looking young and make end up looking more and more freakish. Yeah. You know, seeing the bad 
plastic surgeries and this idea that you either age naturally like a Jessica Lang or someone or you get the wind tunnel face um, or whatever, you know, the things never plastic surgery, unless it's done very mm, sympathetically, never quite looks right. There's always something off with it. Whereas with she. Yeah. So just real briefly to comment on that. So I think a lot about plastic surgery because I'm older and because I lived in LA for a number of years and I've seen it firsthand, but I feel like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And I don't know if this film is saying that, but like, for instance, and I hate to throw out names because I don't want to talk about people looking good or looking bad. And this woman does not look bad, but Amy Madigan, who's married to Ed Harris, um, she's in Streets of Fire. She let herself age as a woman would without doing anything to herself. And when IMDb used to have message boards, um, I looked her up for some reason and I was reading the message boards and people were complaining about how horrible she looked because she looked her age, right? And then you go on another woman's page who's had obviously a lot of plastic surgery and then they would talk about how horrible she looked because she had all this plastic surgery and I feel like like these women that we're supposed to look up to and admire or these people that we consume their images all the time, there's no there's there's no right or wrong for them. They're gonna lose at every corner because aging is just as much of a sin as staying young, right? And so it's difficult to sort of navigate those waters as a woman. You know, and so like um, I can't even remember your original comment because I'm getting on a soapbox and I don't want to do that. But like it's like I don't know if the film is purposely commenting on that, but it is definitely saying that we put so much worth in youth and we've totally disregarded all the things about getting older that are good, too. You know, and and it is sort of commenting on this sort of modern culture push and pull we have with women being forced to feel like they have to have these this sort of youthful um, look to them or build or body or whatever it is. And yet at the same time, when women, and I don't know if Jessica Lane gets it as much, I think there are some women that are able to do it better because they, they stop giving fucks, right? And so it, they're able to sort of rise above it or they're at a certain level in, in being respected. But Kim Novak, you know, and Madonna and all these women that are really strong, powerful women have all fallen victim to these things because that's how forceful that message is out mm. in our culture. So, so like, it's very difficult, you know, to like, so I have sympathy, right, for, for both sides of the, and I have sympathy for Dorian because of it, because I think when you're young, you never think you're going to get older, and the idea of it is terrifying to you, and so you make these sort of uh, deals with the devil, but then you get there and you realize that it's not so great to do, to do this either. Now, Dorian has a lot easier. She just wakes up and she's stunning. Like, you know that scene where she's opening mail with the letter opener, and she's mm-hmm. wearing that, like, kimono? Mm. And she looks yeah. amazing, and that's just her laying around the house opening <laughs> mail. You know what I mean? And you gotta, you gotta think she's she's gulping down the red wine, yeah. and that poor gal on the film is just in there. Oh, she's drinking again. Here it comes. Oh God. Yeah. Oh God. But I mean, I, I just I feel like I got off your original point, Justin. I'm sorry. It's just I I just feel <laughs> like I feel like in a lot of ways this movie is speaking to our culture and how much we diminish certain aspects of it. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, but no, I think it's it's kind of an interesting point whether or not it was you know what it, what they were making with it. I mean, obviously there were some uh, uh, conversations going on around the because at the time in 1981, 83, when this was you know was aired and made, I mean it, there were still conversations going on about celebrity, wasn't there? And it wasn't quite the celebrity culture we have today, or but no. there was still. Um, I mean, even back in the back in the 50s, you had the Hollywood Confidential, didn't you? All those magazines that were attacking 
actresses and uh, actors all the time and you know outing them and you know trying to drag them through the mud so it's something that's been around for a long time but it's become more acute uh perhaps uh sort of sort of recently um but one thing i did want to say was i've never in all my years of drinking red wine uh, managed to uh stab myself with a corkscrew so, <laughs> uh, you're just more talented than she is well i just thought because they were going oh my god that's really deep and i was thinking but how did she stab herself with that corkscrew because you if you you would have to turn it in your hand for it to yes, cause any damage yeah. wouldn't you unless of course you're jason Voorhees with uh, yes in, uh, yeah. I was just thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> Where's the fucking? <laughs> yeah. The part about that where she cuts her hand at the party. So I thought for sure that the people that were in the main room, the drag queens, were gonna find the reel and put it on at the party. Oh, I thought I was waiting to happen, and then there was gonna be mayhem, but that just didn't come to be. They just had the party, and that was the end of it. But like, um, I was like, oh my god, these drag queens are gonna destroy everything. Why? it would have been interesting yeah so it's just you're right because they're just sitting around watching tv because if they're not watching tv in the main room then they're in her bedroom watching tv and they're like i love this horror movie so much what a party <laughs> hooray yeah it's funny so anyway i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut off your point justin well, no, I can't remember, whether, but it's... <laughs> Sorry, well, I did that. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. But I think it's it could have been more fun. I mean, I, it'd be interesting to wonder what this film had been if it had been a kind of a, a kind of more of a theatrical release that went a bit harder R rating rather than mm-hmm. um, the constraints of t- a TV land. Because, yeah. uh, you know, say that party at the end, because you never... That's the thing, I never really got the feeling that she really went off the deep end. She became a bit, you know, unpleasant to be around. And they said she's done all these terrible things and lived, went abroad and lived life to the full. But whether that meant she went, you know, sightseeing in Bangkok or... or <laughs> they never explained it, did they? So whether or not she was, you know, they said that she did all these um, these terrible kind of things. But you got that in the, um, in the 1970, The Sins of Dorian Gray, a little bit more. Uh, but in this, if it had been a, heart, a narrated movie or something that had been made by, in you know, we were talking earlier about um, the house on the edge of the park. If it had been a, had that kind of uh, sort of feel to it, or that kind of extremities of you know her snorting up cocaine, being surrounded by people ODing, or you know d- doing angel dust, or sort of all these kind of things that possibly would in very 90, early 1980s. It might have given it, rather than just, um, you know, having an occasional glass of red wine and chain smoking um, and hiring a hitman to kill off your photographer, then it's... Yes, right, she did do that. (laughs) I I think, too, that maybe that it was made by people who normally make children's programming, that their idea of debauchery Mm. is just like, let's say it... Drag queens. Yeah, and have a couple drag queens, and then let's call it a day. Because I don't think that they normally walked into this kind of stuff like looking back even like um i'm thinking back to the last dinosaur because richard boone's character who goes looking for the last dinosaur he's really rich and i feel like he might have a young girlfriend at his house but there's never much aside from the fact that like there's a beautiful woman in his life or something and i'm and i don't even sure i remember that correctly but like um it's played off of course that's more of a children's film but i i wonder frank and bass maybe for them that's also where they wanted to go with it partially because of the reputation and maybe that's just where their mindset was True, yeah. She's going to drink wine in bed. What? 
Jules, come on. That's crazy. No, Arthur. No, this is going to work. Yeah. So there is yeah, there is kind of an innocent quality to it in that way, which is really interesting. And um, and I didn't want to forget to ask Nate, even though Nate apparently hated this movie and I shouldn't even be talking to him. <laughs> um, Nate, what did you think about her traipsing off to a third world country to help children? Um, it was part <laughs> of the movie. Um, Don't be so bitter, Nate. Her... Um... Um, Mother Teresa shtick that she had going on there. Um, I, I, that's what I was getting vibes from. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I, by that point, I was thinking, okay, I know how the ending to Dorian Gray goes, so why is she overseas right now? <laughs> like, what is going on here? Um, but, you know, I mean, I think that she was trying to better herself. You know, she, she wasn't a bad person, just a little misguided. I think she's flawed, and maybe that's why I like her so much, because I don't see her as a completely bad person either. I think she can be bitchy, you know, during the photo sessions or whatever, but I felt like it came from, like, an aching heart, you know, of like, because the other thing that I noted was that you'll notice that after Joseph Bottom's character dies, there's no other love interest. So, like, she loved him, and he's gone, and so I kind of feel like there's this quality to her that's very sad. You know, but also I think maybe Justin said it um, that he thinks that maybe like her going to wherever she went to to the orphanage was sort of like um, more superficial than anything else. And it made me think about, of all things, um, there's this episode of Monsters. I don't know if you guys have all seen the TV show Monsters. It was an anthology show that came out after Tales from the Dark Side. And there's an episode Mm -hmm. with a woman who's like the female Ebenezer Scrooge. And she um, her husband is dying and she wants to sell like she's going to inherit all these properties from him and she wants to sell them and her son wants to turn it into like a shelter for homeless people something like that and she's like no i want the money and so she gets visited by the different ghosts and she has a transformation like ebenezer screws does but at the end there's this idea that she just kind of did it like oh, i'm going to change i'm going to change because she was afraid and and what they told her was because she was this beautiful woman, they were like, if you go against, you know, being good to people, we're going to make you super ugly. And then you see these hands, her hands are covered in warts or whatever. So at the very end, after her transformation, she's still really beautiful. But then you, she does this thing and I can't remember what it is, but she, you're like, oh, she just did that to like make it look good, but she doesn't mean it. And then one of the ghosts comes, and they're like, hey, remember what we said? And then they show her hand looking all ugly again. And she's like, I'll be good. I'll be good. And that's kind of how the episode ends. And I thought that was very interesting. And so I wonder here is if the whole time she's doing these things in the back of her mind, she's thinking this is going to save me instead of thinking about how she's helping the kids. Do you know what I mean? So that's something. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I, if it was me, I would have done, gone out and rescued a puppy and helped an old lady across the road and knit back uh, ten minutes later to see if I'd looked any better in the film rather than ten years. That was kind of dedication, wasn't it? It was yeah, a lot of dedication on her part. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, she had a lot to make up for. Yeah. You know, because she did a bunch of stuff we didn't see off camera. So, <laughs> but it was an interesting point, something I hadn't thought about. And I wonder if there was a message there, too. I don't know. I feel like maybe because Rankin and Best make so many message things anyway that that I'm maybe I'm putting more into it than I should. But I did see a lot of stuff happening in the subtext of this film that I was really drawn to. So it was really interesting to me. So um, I don't know if there's much more to say. Does anybody want to add anything? I was just going to um, mention uh, what, the, the way we're talking about Dorian in this. I like that she's she kind of is almost she's the reluctant Dorian Gray. 
you know, she 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 discovers that she can do whatever she wants, but she, she never fully seems to get into it, and she yeah. never she's just doing it because it's like if if this this film is going to get old, and I'm going to stay young, why not try something or other? You know, I guess I guess like a really boring version of Dorian Gray would be like a really nice person discovering that this film aged and got like decrepit instead of them and just going out and being really nice like Mr. Rogers if Mr. Rogers had a um a picture of Dorian Gray hidden and like you he would you know like 30 years later he'd be he'd still be in his mid 20s and when he looked at the picture the picture would be in his mid 50s but still look the same maybe a little salt and pepper in the hair or something but you know like the really nice Dorian Gray so so you mean oh. you mean Brad Pitt <laughs> More or less, yeah. yes. Because <laughs> he's like a really nice guy who doesn't seem to age ever. Yeah, uh, and in the in the if I remember correctly from the book, Dorian something happens like a friend of his is killed or something. Uh, I could be making that up, but he decides to try to be good, and he is good. Oh, he tried. He does some good things, and then he looks at the picture, and the picture looks even worse. And it's because. Um, although he thought he was trying to be good for good's sake, he was actually doing it out of vanity and out of just, like, trying to correct the picture, which doesn't convince the picture, and it just gets worse. And that's when he stabs the picture. That's something else I wanted to bring up. So one of the things I noticed is the last names of some of the characters. So it's Henry and Sophia Lord, right? And, Mm -hmm. And they're playing God because with her life. Right, because they, the film reel is what yeah. captures her, and Sophia is the one who makes the film, and and she's allowed to do the bargaining that she does because this film exists. And Henry is constantly playing with her, right, and 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 overseeing her and giving her all these things, but with with um, attachments, with strings attached, right. And then also Joseph Bottom's character's name is Stuart Bain, and so when you talk about vanity, mm. I wonder if that plays a part as well into it so anyway i want to write a paper on this movie that's all i was that's it i'll just leave it at that i feel like i went on so let's just do some background and then we'll do our piece of feedback and then this is a really long episode i hope everybody's enjoying it so okay so (laughs) since the dorian gray originally aired on may 27th 1983 on abc it ran against the sound of music on nbc and on which i think i watched actually on the night this aired and on and on cbs was of course dallas again and falcon crest with our lovable robert foxworth um this also did very badly in the ratings. It it got an 11.4 slash 20, which means it came in at 195 out of 231 TV movies and miniseries to air that season. That's super low. I don't know what it did for the week, but it was one of the lowest rated, I imagine. Um, this was shot in New York, Canada, and the Dominican Republic. It was intended to be released theatrically overseas, as I mentioned. Um, casting notices in the newspapers began... Um, in January of 1982, but Variety actually reported Joseph Bottoms, Anthony Ferguson, Belinda Power, and Cass in November of 1981. And what made it so interesting to me is that in April of 1981, there was a newspaper story. There was they appeared in several newspapers, but it seemed to be from one source that they had cast the film, but only the guys. They'd cast Joseph Bottoms and Anthony Perkins, and that the filmmakers were looking to hire Deborah Raffin to play. Dorian Gray and Justin and I would know Deborah Raffin from Nightmare in Badham County. We did the commentary for that. She stars in that, and um, she would have been very good in this part, but totally different. And I thought that was funny because months earlier they had already reported that Belinda Bauer was hired to play her. So I don't know where that Deborah Raffin rumor came from, but it was really interesting. Um, 
So Bauer is Australian, so that might be why you notice an accent. You know, that's really funny. There's a scene at the beginning where she says, um, Joseph Bottoms asks her if she's from New York, and I'm like, clearly she's not from this country. Do you remember that? Because <laughs> she has a slight accent that you can pick up on. So anyway, she's mm-hmm. from the actress is from Australia. Um, this was a fairly early role for her career. Um, she only did a handful of things, but she was in some pretty big films. She appeared in Flashdance and Robocop 2. She was in a really great uh, late 80s TV movie with James Bader called Starcross, where she plays an alien that I love. Um, she's now a psychologist, I read, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and you guys already talked about Tony Malum directing The Burning, um, but I guess he's best known for his documentaries. And he also directed that movie Split Second with Rucker Hauer. And, he's, and he also did a lot of commercials. And I think you can see the flair for commercials in this because this is a pretty kind of MTV looking film. It's very flashy. Um, I actually looked up Tony Malum and he's kind of cute. And he looks like Joseph Bottoms to me, which I thought was really interesting. Um, so Joseph has three brothers. And I thought it was interesting that um, Justin brought up Dolly Dearest because I think that stars Sam Bottoms, who was their youngest brother. Yeah, he's in the TV movie Savages. Timothy Bottoms has been in a lot of stuff, but I guess he's best known now for playing George Bush and That's My Bush because he looks a lot like George Bush. And then they had a third brother named Ben Bottoms um, who was in a couple things but didn't really have a big acting career. Joseph, of course, who stars in This Is My Favorite Bottoms. He used to be Timothy, but Joseph Bottoms is in um, Shades of Love. Um, he's in an episode titled Make Mine Chartreuse. Yay! Yay! I found my copy finally. Oh, I couldn't Yay. find it when we, when we like, were doing our. It's one of we my favorite uh, Shades of Love episodes. I've got it here. And so he's um, <laughs> he's like my new favorite, but he used to be Timothy Bottoms. Um, so there was an ad in a February 1982 issue of uh, Variety that featured four Rankin and Bass book options. So in this era, they had picked up four book titles: Picture of Dorian Gray, Flight of the Dragons, The Last Unicorn, and Wind in the Willows, all of which got produced, and this is the only one I think that's not animated. Um, they didn't do a lot of live-action stuff, but they did do a few things, which I highly um, recommend people check out because they're they're so different from their animated stuff. The Bermuda Depths is probably the closest they have to looking mm. like a Rankin and Bass quote-unquote production that we're used to. But they're all really interesting. Uh, Bermuda Depths is a really amazing film. Um, and also starred yeah. Connie Selica, who is this beautiful, dark-haired, enigmatic woman. And I saw a lot of Belinda Bauer in her, right? They, they're mm. similar in their look. These, like, dark-haired, enigmatic beauties, um, kind of spellbinding women. Um, they Rankin and Best was really good at that casting. Um, Anthony Perkins said that his filmmaking style, because you know, he'd go on to direct not too soon, um, not too late after this. He said uh, his filmmaking style was not to waste time. And he said that he got that from the TV movies. In an interview, he said, quote, one of the things I learned to like about ma- the movies of the week uh, that I've done is that you just get up there and you do them, end quote. Yeah, so he's right. So they have very short production schedules. And he l- kind of learned that kind of style of filmmaking when he went on to make his own films. Barbara S. Rothschild of the Courier Post in Camden, New Jersey, hated the film, and she said, quote, in the novel, Oscar Wilde wrote, all art is useless. If Oscar were around today, he'd amend that sentiment to take in TV movies. Kay Gardella of the Daily News in New York said that this movie was ridiculous and added that the film was a good idea, but like the heroine, it goes wrong. Rick Sherwood of the Missoulian from Missouri said that it was clever, but it had pacing issues, which is something I think Nate would agree with. Uh, Rothschild also made a strange statement that led me to think that the sense of Dorian Gray was actually preempted, at least by one affiliate, to show 1981's The Fan, which Justin and Nate just covered on their episode, um, on their podcast, which I highly recommend because there's so much 
background given on that film that I'd never heard of. That's really amazing. So she wrote this Rothschild character. She wrote, on Friday night, WPVI-TV Channel 6 is airing The Fan, a 1981 film in which an actress played by Lauren McCall is stalked by a psychotic fan. The film, adapted from a novel, has been described as cheap exploitation, but by preempting the network's own movie offering, The Sins of Dorian Gray to run it, WPVI may have saved the Delaware Valley from a worse case of literary license. So I'm curious if the movie did so poorly because it got preempted in other markets. Mm. And it just occurred to me right now. Um, I'll have yeah. Justin tell us about the flap doodle, so I'll skip that. In <laughs> Los Angeles in 1943, there was a play titled The Sins of Dorian Gray. It got a brief but positive write-up in the L.A. Times. I don't know what the story is. They just said they liked it and recommended it. And then, of course, there was a theatrical film that everybody here has alluded to from 1971, which had the ta- tagline, The Ultimate Perversion and Helmet Burger. And that played, I think, is just plain Dorian Gray and also The Sins of Dorian Gray, depending on where it's screened. Um, but you came across, I don't know if you have other background, but you also came across a really funny review view didn't you justin uh yes uh it's from mike duffy in the detroit free press uh from the i'm presuming it's the night it aired on may 27 1983 he called the sins of dorian gray inspired dreck uh he went on to say give uh, give your brain the night off friday and dive into a magnificent heap of thoroughly cuckoo nonsense called the sins of dorian gray a glossy energetic hunk a shameless flap doodle and scored, scores points for flaunting a <laughs> exuberant trashiness. Uh, and uh, so he obviously was kind of had fun with his review. And he said that um, uh, that Andy Perkins was clearly in training for his return, upcoming return as Norman Bates in Psycho 2, which obviously came out later that year. Um, and also I did the other one last thing is I found a, a piece from um, United Press International from October 1981 that was talking about uh, the um, Belinda Bauer being uh, cast in um, uh, in the Sins of Dorian Gray, which they called the picture of Dorian Gray uh, in this. Mm. And they, she'd been in a movie called Winter Kills. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting that I don't know where the Deborah Raffin thing came up. And I wish Deborah Raffin was still with us because, A, she was a great actress. But, B, I would love to ask her if she had ever been approached later on after the casting or before maybe and that that new story just came late but i thought that was really interesting so yeah this movie was treated a little differently than other tv movies i think it shows in in the uh, aesthetics of it um i think we, we have one really heartfelt recommendation to check it out and one don't bother is that right that sounds good sounds, sounds about right may i just may i just mention flapdoodle real yes, quick of course <laughs> I, I was going to think now first I'm, I'm surprised none of us mentioned slap and tickle oh, from midnight offerings I went to and i totally forgot yeah <laughs> but um i was going to say i i just when you said the word flapdoodle i was thinking the i think the only other time i've heard flap, possibly is i think in a late 70s forgive me episode of doctor who uh, when Tom Baker was the doctor, the fourth doctor, I think in one of the episodes, like the villain or someone is explaining his big plot to the doctor, and the doctor just looks at him and says, flap doodle. <laughs> and I think that's the only other time I can think of that word being used. And, oh, one more, oh, one more, I'm sorry, one more thing after the flap doodle. <laughs> what, what I just realized, what was interesting about, one of the things about Sinsadorian Gray is that for the whole thing, 30 years, well, the 20 years she's she's doing the modeling, it's always her face 
And there's never a point where they like she's in like a really short skirt mm. or she's in a bikini. Because I was thinking of Connie Selica and Bermuda Depths, and I was I was just thinking there's never a point where they like sort of like stare at like there are pictures of her in like a bikini or something like that. It's just always her face. I don't know if that means anything. I mean, I guess the face is what changes in the film, but surely that that might have come up too. But but they never do that throughout the film. She's always in long dresses yeah. or big fur coats, and it's always her face. They never sort of objectify her body, which you think, I mean, I, I don't mean to sound like a perv, but would you think if she's supposed to be this absolutely beautiful being who never ages, that might come into it too. But I just thought of that when you mentioned it. Yeah, Bonnie. the only time I can think of them showing anything that's even remotely like skin is when she's bitching to the makeup lady when she fires her she's got this blue top on that's cut down the back you can kind of see a part of her back for the way that oh yes and yes, that's the yeah. only time i can remember and i think that's why i even remember is because i noticed that that's the only time we saw anything aside on her she body was wrapped up yeah, yeah. that's really interesting yeah. no, i never thought okay so there's a there's a dissertation coming on this movie <laughs> definitely it's coming definitely. right just to warn everybody so okay so that was the sense of dorian grade let me just read this one piece of feedback we got uh real quick and then we will promote some stuff and then we will let everybody go so um we heard from my friend chad so he wrote uh good afternoon this is chad williamson and he's speaking to me here we've chatted before about dallas and cruising to terror i saw that you were going to talk about midnight offerings and i couldn't help but want to send you some of my thoughts about the movie so then he wrote Midnight Offerings. So to start with, this is one of my favorite TV movies. Now, I didn't watch it when it originally broadcast. I was, um, my it was my college roommate that made me watch it back in the early 1990s when either TNT or the Sci-Fi Network would air horror movies during the month of October. That's how I also got to see This House Possessed and The House That Would Not Die. Thanks, local cable network provider. I still have the DVD I converted from my VHS tape, and I'm still convinced that there needs to be a channel devoted to TV movies and TV series that were canceled too soon, but I digress. The plot's pretty simple. High school student Vivian is a dark witch who is using her powers to hurt people to get what she wants out of life. Her boyfriend Dave has figured out she's a witch and is trying to distance himself from her, but she's not having it. Enter Robin, new girl, the dormant witch, who has moved to town to, for a fresh start with her dad. Robin and Dave meet and start to become close, but Vivian figures out that Robin is also a witch and now wants her out of her school and threatens to kill her if she does not leave. Vivian's mother, also a witch, realizes that Vivian is doing what Vivian is doing and tells her to stop, but is Vivian unstoppable? So when you look at, when you, but Vivian is unstoppable, or is she, I'm sorry. So when you look at the movie up online, there isn't a lot to read. But I did find that people like to say it's a ripoff of Stephen King's Carrie, but I don't think it is. The initiation of Sarah or the spell are closer to ripping off Carrie than this movie. The only telekinetic powers in high school setting is reminiscent of Carrie, in my opinion. I also can't stand that people label it as cheesy. It's a TV movie made in 1981. What were they expecting? I also think this movie inspired the craft to a certain degree, along with Charmed. But ultimately, I still think this movie holds up and has some good moments throughout. My favorite moments include... The telekinetic catfight between Vivian and Robin in the industrial arts shop, shop classroom. Vivian's delivery of the line, you won't, is by far chilling and absurd at the same time. Vivian facing off with her mother in the kitchen. Robin's conversation with Emily and discovering who she is, who doesn't love Marion Ross, and the amazing finale. And whoever cast this movie did a really bang-up job. The casting of two young women from long-running wholesome family TV shows was really smart. Who didn't want to see a Walton's girl face off with one of the Angles? At least in my head as a child, I found the Waltons and Little House in the Prairie slightly interchangeable. Melissa Sue Anderson gives it her all as the bitchy Vivian, and Mary McDonough may not have had the flashier, bitchier role, but she does deliver some good scenes with her dad, 
Dave and when fa- and Dave and when facing off with Melissa Anderson. I think Patrick Cassidy is fine as Dave. Uh, could those shorts have been any shorter? But Catherine Damon shines as Vivian's mother, who has figured out exactly what's going on. I love her scene with Gordon Jump when you see exactly what she's thinking. And then to throw in Marion Ross from Happy Days, having Ross play the likable mentor, witch down the street, who bakes cookies and hands out witchcraft advice like she's having a Tupperware party is nothing short of brilliant. I do have some questions because I always dissect a movie when I'm finished watching it. Did the principal just tell Robin to wander around school? Why not send her home? Are Robin and her dad just living in a house where one of the rooms nearly burned down? We mentioned that. Did Robin go just hang out with Dave to discover her powers and leave her dad at the hospital? How did Robin's dad, uh, dad's work associate just wander into their house and why didn't he answer the phone? Why wasn't the cat at the bonfire? Did Emily's daughter burn the cookies in the kitchen? Does Vivian need to wear more makeup than Tammy Faye Baker to be a true Hecatite witch? All kidding aside, this movie will always be one of my favorites. I do love the ending. I won't spoil it, but it's always extremely satisfying and startling when I saw it for the first time. Now, if only there was an actual DVD release, that would be amazing. In fact, I'm sure even Vivian would approve. So thank you, Chad. This is really good and probably encompasses everything we spent an hour and a half talking about. So we could have just read your letter you, and called it a day. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, I, I love the stuff that he brings up um, about the film in terms of how it it was influencing um, an influencing force on Charmed, which I think has been brought up now a couple times, which is it's something to think about that I never considered before. And some of the... Uh, Full pause he brought up. It made me think about one of the things I wanted to comment on is we were talking about whether or not Vivian had a crow. I think it was a crow. But there's that scene where she's in the van. The crow is in the van attacking them, which is a really great scene. Mm. But when they throw the van out the door, it becomes Vivian. So she, right, because you remember she it kind of rolls. Mm. And then and then she's standing out on the road and screaming. And that's such a neat camera shot, the way it sort of becomes her. And we didn't even comment on the fact that she can she's an animal. Right? Like her powers are so good that she yes. can become animal, right? And it's animal, really cool. Yeah. yeah, it's such a neat moment. But anyway, thank you, Chad. I really appreciate uh, your thank feedback. You, um, so let me tell you how to get in touch with us. You can find us on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem Show. You can find us um, on Twitter at the TV Mayhem Podcast, or you can find us on Instagram at Made for TV Mayhem. Um, you can email us at tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com. I was going to tell you what our next episode would be, but I contacted our guest and I haven't heard back, so I don't know if it's confirmed yet. So I will let you know as soon as I find out what our next episode will be, but we're staying with horror and it should be really interesting. And we have kind of a matter expert coming in to talk about the, what I've chosen. So that'll be exciting. But for now, let's just go ahead and shamelessly plug stuff. So I don't have much to say now, except, um, I did the liner notes for The Last Starfighter, which just came out this month on Blu-ray. And I also did the liner notes for a movie coming out, probably by the time you listen to this, um, called I Start Counting, which is a British thriller directed by David Green, who is a predominant TV movie director who directed a couple of theatricals in England um, before he did that. And um, and I think that's the only things I can announce. I know that Justin and Nate have been doing some commentaries. Can you guys talk about any of them? Uh, yes, um, I'm trying to remember the ones that have been announced. I know we've um, we've done some commentaries for 88 Films in the UK. We've done a commentary for New Year's Evil. Yay! Yes, I'm so excited. Which falls in this kind of time frame. Um, also, Moon in Scorpio. Uh, mm. It's another kind of later sort of um, 80s slasher movie. Uh, we've also been doing some stuff with Vinegar Syndrome and um, the ones that uh, uh, we did Grave Robbers, the... Um, uh, 
oh, a Mexican yeah. sort of a slash movie. So we do have a few others uh, that have been completed. Um, we've also, of course, we also did um, uh, for 88 films, we did I Know What You Did Last Summer and I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, Double Ender. Big. So, uh, but there are a few others um, that um, haven't been announced yet that we've got in the bag and some others coming up in the future. I think that's that's about right, isn't it, Nathan? Yes. <laughs> I don't want to uh, announce anything that we're not allowed to announce yet because I don't really understand how it all works but it's uh, you know you have to be careful with uh, rights and things like that so so that's what we can announce but we do have some ones that um, that we have done that haven't been announced yet which will be quite exciting some that have never been on Blu-ray or any digital released in the United States I think so that should be uh, yeah that'll be exciting yay um, Dan, what do you have going on? Uh, well, you, you can uh, you, uh, you can always go over to my uh, my eventually uh, supertrain blogspot dot com uh, and eventually supertrain. We are on, I think uh, episode ninety seven is about to go up, and we're still talking about um, Tim Tim Turner, the great Tim Turner. Yeah. Myself are talking about uh, Nero Wolf. I'm talking about the David Lynch Mark Frost show on the air, and Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Wrights, and myself are talking uh, Auto Man. I'm some distance into Rockin' All Week with you, Happy Days Podcast Season 4, wow. and I, I am about to um, begin my next minute-by-minute uh, minute podcast, which is going to be another double feature. It'll be another um, couple of horror movies, probably slashery films. The last one I did was uh, the zombie film, Zombie Lake and Burial Ground. This one will be, well, I won't tell you yet. Mm. And I just, I, just, I just realized that um, uh, New Year's Evil is directed by the guy who directed Three-Way Weekend, which everyone should go see, maybe. <laughs> That's an endorsement. Yeah, so uh, yeah. So everybody check out Eventually Super Train and definitely check out, uh, that sounded horrible, check out Dan's stuff, but definitely check this out. So we do a check out um, <laughs> Hysteria Continues and obviously your website yes. Hysteria Lives, which is incredible and you still update and still add all kinds of neat stuff to it. And like you're like me, like you're a deep diver in the Sasha world, whereas I'm so much with the TV world. And so like if anybody's listening and they haven't heard it, you need to check it out. Um, it's they're both are wonderful. And so Justin, thank you so much for coming on. And oh, I can't, yes, thank you, Justin. I can't believe thank I you. held off on the marriage proposals for this long. So I'm just going to ask right here. Just think it over. Just think wow. it over. Set so, the date. Oh, oh my God. Well, I, I can't, I'm already married. I'm already married. It's unfortunate yeah, but... we have to remain star-crossed, um, non-lovers. A little while. Well, there's still some romance, and it's all take it for right now. Well, unless you for do right now. Dorian Gray and hire a hitman, and that's the only solution I can see. Why are you me? I might do like the fan <laughs> and and just try to annihilate everybody in your life. I could do that. So expect some letters in the mail soon. Is all I'm saying. Okay. Um, okay. I shall look out for that. Okay. Mind you, I'll take that five here if um, by our postal service and the United States Postal Service I think any mm-hmm. letters you send will probably turn up it's probably best to throw it in the ocean in the bottle right, get here quick yeah, I, might, I might do that and I don't know why but the, when I talk about like the fan all I can think about is that scene where he, he goes to the gay bar and picks up that guy and then kills him and sets him on fire and mm. and I don't know why I would do that for you because I don't I guess I would fake my death <laughs> I guess I would fake my death I'm like I'm trying to figure out how I can <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out how I can figure that into it. So, yeah, to fake my death. So expect me to fake my death at some point, too. Okay. So, anyway, thanks, everybody, for joining us. We hope you have a wonderful Halloween, and we hope everybody stays safe and healthy. And we will be back next month with another guest and another couple of TV movies. So, good night. 
Yeah. Good night, everyone. All right. Good night. Good, night. Good morning.